With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I have one acquaintance who said that Rick started offering him, you know, hey, I could potentially get you into this school for a certain amount of money. Almost from the very beginning, Rick Singer was cutting corners, at least in a small way. The word I got from people who knew him in Sacramento was he was exaggerating and fabricating there on kids' applications. You know, changing their race from white to Latino or African-American so that they could qualify for affirmative action. I mean, he was quite brazen. For many years, the SAT was explained and advertised as being an aptitude test. A very prominent predictive feature of getting a high test score is family income. The College Board has admitted, and the ACT have admitted this for years. This is not a secret that's being divulged. If I were appointed czar of American college admissions, I would abolish standardized testing. It would mean that all of these wealthy test prep companies would have to find something else to do. Register your son or daughter for the Princeton Review's 1500-plus course. It's a game changer. There's a fair warning around test preparation. This is a business. Every claim they make is marketing-driven. We even offer a guaranteed score improvement of at least 150 points. All standardized testing automatically advantages the people who are already advantaged. When you look at it in light of the scandal, when you have predominantly rich families who had every advantage that said they should be fine on the SAT, they're going to score in the highest demographic, they had all the prep in the world that they wanted, and yet they still cheated. Okay, the first thing we need to do, and I think I mentioned this to your wife, we need to get your daughter tested for a learning difference. Let's say it's my person who does it, or whoever you want to do it. I need that person to get her 100% extended time over multiple days. When you take the SAT or the ACT, it's a timed test, right? There are restrictions on how it's delivered. To account for learning disabilities, what often happens is accommodations are provided. You have to have certain medical documentation of the need for these accommodations. And that's one of the avenues that Rick Singer exploited. I also need to tell your daughter that when she takes the test, to not be as, to be stupid, to not be as smart as she is. The goal is to be slow. To not be as bright as she is, all that, so that we show discrepancies. At the academy, kids are getting extra time all the time. You mean the Greenwich Academy? Yeah, everywhere in the country. What happened is, all the wealthy families have figured out, if I get my kid tested and they get extended time, they can do better on the test. Most of these kids don't even have issues. They're getting extra time. The playing field's not fair. No, it's not. I try not to blame the families or the parents. I tend to focus the criticism on the colleges and universities that created this system. If they didn't have these loopholes and these preferences for families of privilege, then I don't think there would be these kind of temptations. This scandal is not necessarily a reason 
for colleges to change their ways because it makes the colleges seem more exclusive and desirable than ever. If all these rich people are willing to go to these incredible lengths and risk jail time just to get their kids into these colleges, then they must be extremely valuable. The Cows, Gus T. Renegade, context of white supremacy, hopefully will provide some constructive information on what racism is, how it works. Uh, today's date, Wednesday, June 7, 2023. So I have been told. Mm-mm-mm. Black O.J. Simpson, Gusty Renegade. Um, man, this our broadcast today close to my heart for so many reasons many of my uh, favorite subjects normally if we have a word to highlight for a program which is not always the case but when we do it'll just be one word today the rare time there will be two words for the program now one of them is so profuse it had to be the word for the program you already heard it two times fair had to be but the co-word of the program, equally important, is not all throughout the text. It's there, I think, just one time, but oh, wow. Sometimes, just once, more than enough. The other word for this program, deliberately. Mm. Mm. So many of the things happen in the system of white supremacy racism, when we're talking about black people being mistreated, non-white people being mistreated, these things are not happenstance. They are not accidental. This is not a blind spot. These things happen deliberately. But that's not the word that gets used. It's in this book. One time. Co-word of the program. I don't even remember how I found this book. I told you sometimes you go to the library and it'll be you find so many goodies and at least for myself I'll find so many goodies I will forget about all the things that I found and I have to go back and think, oh man, I forgot. Let me go back and look. This was in the enormous batch of things that I forgot. And so June, what I thought was going to be random is not so random. It'll just be the oh man, I'm so glad I didn't forget all of this wonderful information. O.J. Simpson, O.J. Simpson, our book for today's program, so important, why it's important, reading, more important, sitting in front of those screens, binge watching Netflix and YouTube and all the rest of it, try to get more information so that we can solve this problem. Our book for today, Racing for Innocence, Whiteness, Gender, and the Backlash against affirmative action. Easily one of our favorite subject matters. Uh, affirmative action comes up so frequently, uh, often in very curious ways. Uh, I always give an, an eyebrow raise when this topic comes up. This book is great because it talks about there's so much confusion, misunderstanding about this subject matter and how have to point that out almost every time to adjust my counter racist code as a result of 
my understanding of affirmative action. I wish I had read this book sooner. Would have shut down a whole lot of arguments quickly, efficiently, with data. We shall proceed fair, deliberately. Our guest, in addition to writing this here book, uh, she is faculty at the University of Minnesota. Go Gophers! Shout to George Floyd. Oh, man, and they just legalized recreational cannabis. My goodness, she might be under the influence. Who knows? They're celebrating out in Gopherland. Anywho, uh, she is faculty member at the University of Minnesota's Department of American, Amer- African-American Studies. Dr. Pierce, uh, her research follows two related trajectories, one in the area of racial and gender inequality in American workplaces, something we talk about all the time, big part of this book too, and several collaborative projects developing different aspects of her method- methodological expertise. I think I got that right. So happy she could share a bit of her June Wednesday evening with us to discuss this great book. Joining us live, Dr. Jennifer L. Pierce. Dr. Pierce, you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you a bunch uh, for sharing a bit of your evening. Uh, Before I allow you to share with listeners a bit about yourself, the work that you do, just quickly, I didn't start this program with that three-minute audio for no reason. That was the documentary Varsity Blues. Now, that came out like a decade after this book that we're talking about was published, but I mean... There are a whole lot of things that I could have started with. They've got current court case about affirmative action, could have played that. and But that right there really, I think, says so much. I mean, if we're going to talk about meritocracy, fairness, they said it so many times. And the people who have the most are cheating. That right there just says so much. I feel like that is the best context for the program. In fact, uh, Mr. Singer, who I think is serving three and a half years felony time, he just started this year. They started at the beginning. They even said that he would lie and take some of his white children clients and change their racial classification to non-white so that they could get affirmative action amongst all the other dastardly things that these white parents did cheating to get more time on the test and all the rest of this widespread cheating and then to turn around and talk about unqualified so-and-so and you need to work hard and all. that I feel is really part of the correct context to look at all of this like really just making sure I didn't forget yeah. there we go yes ma'am Dr. Pierce oh yeah no I was gonna say it's crazy because I, I mean, at Harvard, for example, if you are uh, a legacy, in other words, if your parents or a relative went to Harvard, you're five times as likely to get accepted as anyone else. Five times. So people are complaining about affirmative action when really affirmative action is for white people. At, at these very elite schools. There was a very good article about, and I think it was in Mother Jones, about Harvard's um, interview process. They will do interviews with people who are prospective candidates. And one of what's really clear from doing the interviews 
is that they're rewarding people who are upper middle class and have been trained to socialize and have conversations in a certain way. So if you're working class or very shy, you're going to bomb that part of the interview. But it's a compl- and you get points for doing the interview and doing well. And again, it's one of these things that benefits white wealthy white people. And that's, you know, and then you have all the cheating scandals with University of Southern California, which I have to say when I was in graduate school, I went to the University of California, Berkeley. We used to call it USC, the University of Spoiled Children. No, the Cal Berkeley, the Golden Bears, they're not exactly the uh, poor, desperate, uh, please, sir. I mean, I mean they're, they're pretty uh, elite white folks. They are these things. They are, well, that's changed over time. Um, they certainly, it's one of the top um, public schools, but their, their um, numbers have changed dramatically over time. So there was definitely a time when they were not doing very well, and particularly when affirmative action was first abolished in California, uh, both in employment and in education. Their numbers immediately decreased. Their numbers of racial ethnic minority students decreased by about 50%. I see. Um, But then they developed other plans to get folks in. What were you going to say? I just, I wasn't really speaking to their numbers of non-white people. Just as an institution, they were talking about prestigious institution. Cal Berkeley, I think, oh, is still for yeah. sure in that number. I wasn't really speaking to their racial demographics. Uh, oh, but okay. that said, I, before we pivot to the book, I will make a request because that will be so important for our discussion. One of the ways that I've concluded white people deliberately practice white supremacy racism they will not answer questions something that you talk about in detail in the book i have noted that hey this is deliberate racism they obfuscate they will just give buckets of words or you will ask a question about a they will talk about q f t it's like well wait a minute the question was so if to the best of your ability. We have so many great things. See if we can cover as much as we can. If you can, make sure that you answer the question. We definitely want your expertise. That's why we invited you. But make sure, please answer the question that was asked. Uh, and if you can do so efficiently, give us the detail and what ha- the nuance, as you say, but without wasting a lot of words. And if you could please lower your vocabulary because one of the ways racism works is that they don't allow us to go to the Cal Berkeley's and such. So we don't have all that highfalutin education. If you could kind of speak to us like we are like Mark Furman, talk to us like we are struggling to get a GED. Can we make that request, Dr. Pierce? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Okay. Did you hear my request? Did you hear my request? Okay. Oh, I just heard her. <laughs> I just heard her. Can you hear me, uh, Dr. Pierce? Huh, let's see. What was your other question? Uh, I just, I said, uh, I had two requests. I said, if you could make sure that you answer 
the question that's asked and then to make sure if we don't get lots of unnecessary okay. words. Oh, if I you see. can be efficient uh, in your sure, answer, sure. that would be great. Efficient. Awesome, awesome. Efficient, okay. Okie doke. Let's see. Number one, uh, for folks who have not seen you, your faculty page at U of M, uh, you are classified as a white woman. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. In uh, this program, uh, I use the term racism and the term white supremacy as synonyms. Uh, I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Absolutely. I think racism in this country is absolutely a system that reproduces inequality and that inequality is racialized so that white people end up on top and people of color end up on the bottom. Okay. Okay. Uh, I just want to make sure for listeners uh, you said in the United States, and I said a global system. And I do know that your book oh, yeah. focuses on the U.S., but global system? Right. Right. Okay. I would say it's global as well. Grand, grand. Uh, let's see. We have two, or actually three, because that's important, too. You do include this in the book, and it, it even comes up in some of your interviews, because you speculate this may be why some of these white people are responding kind of nasty to you. You also publicly identify as being a lesbian white woman. Is that accurate? That's right. Okay. That's okay. right. Okay. Got that in two. Let's see. Boom, boom. Two more. And then we're to the book. Uh, so important for this subject matter. Wow. We, we've asked for years, uh, Dr. Pierce. Uh, we've asked bunches of our white guests this question, there was a non-white male. He wrote a piece in a major uh, mainstream publication some years back about racism specifically. And he said that white people are often sincerely and greatly pained by racism, but rarely are they pained enough. I've been asking our white guests just the first portion of that sentence. You're a white woman. Based, you do research. You study and question white people. Study and read about white supremacy, racism. Uh, do you think that a significant number of people classified as white are often greatly and sincerely pained about racism? Do you think that's true, Dr. Pierce? Yeah, I think there are a number of white people who are pained by racism. I also think there are people who don't care, white people who don't care. And then I think there are, you know, the white nationalists who think that's 
how it should be, right? That they think they're justified in saying that. So I guess what I would say is I think there's different positions, but definitely there's a group of white people who are sincerely pained by racism and and living, for example, in the city where Joy, George Floyd was tragically murdered, there was this sort of outpouring of pain by not just black people, but white people. The question becomes, then what are you going to do about it, right? Are you going to actually try and change things? Are you going to try and change policy? Um, or are you just going to sit around and feel bad? Well, this piece was written before George Floyd. So prior to that, uh, and it, it also included often. So this would have to be kind of a regular thing, not just this started suddenly then and often sincerely. Oh, no. Okay, so with the, we got that's the that was the whole thing. So it was white people are often sincerely and greatly pained. So this again, do you see a significant number of people classified as white who are often sincerely and greatly pained about racism? I think that's true. I think that's true. I think there are a good number of white people who are pained, sincerely pained by racism. Mm hmm. And how do these individuals, how do they demonstrate that they are sincerely and greatly pained? Well, this kind of goes to what my book is about, because I think people, white people, the white men I interviewed will say, you know, they think racism is terrible. They don't see themselves as racist you know, they want to be a good white person, that kind of thing. But then they do things that are racially exclusionary. So they they don't mentor black lawyers in my study. They don't take an interest in their career. They don't invite them on important socializing events that would be also important to their career. So there are all these ways that they act very differently than what they say. And that's what one of the black lawyers I interviewed called racing for innocence, the idea that white people will say, I'm not racist, I'm a good white person, I, you know, I belong to the ACLU, et cetera, et cetera. And then they don't do anything to support the black people around them at work. Okay. I'm just, I'm processing what you said, reminding listeners the question was, so is this a true statement? You said, yes, I think there are a good number of white people, sincerely, greatly pained and often. Uh, and you followed with that response, tying it to your book reading your book racing for innocence i didn't see any evidence of any of the white people being sincerely greatly pained about racism and in fact they didn't i don't even really remember too many white people saying that it was a problem most of and i think a big theme of your book was racism is in the past that is very far from i'm sincerely and greatly pained about racism i think this is 
all done and everybody needs to stop whining. And I certainly am innocent about racism. Things are pretty much fair. And that I thought was a big thing, but we will dig in. That's just one that I hold up because I think not being honest about what racism, white supremacy is, how it works. That is a huge part of why we haven't solved this problem. We'll analyze the book and just keep that in mind, Dr. Pierce. Let's see. Oh, my goodness. Okay. What are the last question? Then we will get to the book. You already know. First question will be explain the title, which I guess you did a tad bit. But just to make sure we don't miss. But before we get to that, man, oh, man, and you already told us, got our, our plug in for Cal Berkeley. Go uh, Bears. Bay Area. Bay Area mom is right there. Um, whew. Particularly with this subject. My goodness. Were you uh, were you native of the California state of California, Dr. Pierce? No, I'm not. Okay. No, I grew up in Colorado. Colorado. Oh, Columbine. Look at that. <laughs> Can't believe I it. Book, book club tomorrow, Columbine. Book club tomorrow, Columbine. Okay. Uh, with this here book and you being someone with this book specifically that analyzes uh, the decade of the 90s and affirmative action mm-hmm. and different films that were coming out basically in that decade uh, of the 90s and newspaper articles and such, I read, and particularly when you broke down the section about uh, the New York Times, L.A. Times, or San Francisco Chronicle, sorry, uh, those two papers, Mm -hmm. uh, opposite coasts, and articles that they had about affirmative action and then tracking the numbers of times that affirmative action was being talked about over the years, and there was an enormous spike. The peak year was 1995. 1996 was really hot too, but the peak year was 1995. I said, wow, that's amazing because 96 is an election year and, you know, having Clinton and Dole talk about Mm -hmm. that, that's a big deal, but the peak year was the year before that, 95, and I said, what's 1995? (gasps) A rental James Simpson in a book where you do mention the race card. How in the world is O.J. Simpson omitted from this text, uh, Dr. Pierce? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. When I was looking at, uh, it's interesting because in all the debates about that were in the papers about affirmative action, he just never came up. Certainly he came up in other contexts, but he didn't come up in that. So that's part of having this laser focus on the debate, but he didn't come up. But I think that's an important point because there was a huge debate about whether he was guilty or not, about Mark Furman's crazy testimony, you know, all of that. So yeah, that's, that's a, that's a gap. I think you've identified pointing out Dr. Welsing thank you so much I hopefully get to mention her again Dr. Frances Cress Welsing she said watch that word crazy because you said crazy twice when often what we really mean is racist I definitely have not heard anyone say that Mark Furman has mental illness or is crazy or schizophrenic Mark Furman is racist but this is a major omission and I mean like hey I can do my tap my shoulders really I can thank Jeff Tubin. thank you Jeff Tubin, for us researching O.J. Simpson, my God, this is like a major scholarly omission, uh, Dr. Pierce. Like, you mentioned his name already. Mark Furman should have been on the cover of your book. 
uh, Dr. Pierce. This, if I was going to do a letter grade assessment, I got about halfway through the book and I said, oh, if Mark Furman and O.J. Simpson aren't in this book, that's like two letter grade deduction. And just what you said, you said you read the newspaper and it didn't come up. I did exactly what you did and I did it so nasty. I shouldn't say that word. I did it. I was so scholarly. I picked the L.A. Times first and I said, nope. That's not one of the uh, articles that she used. I could have had my pick of New York Times articles, which means there are multiple with this same theme. So the one that I chose behind the badge, a special report, a portrait of the detective in the Oriental James Simpson whirlpool. What a metaphor. So I'm skipping way down because this is a beefy report. The most serious blemish on Mr. Furman's work in the West Los Angeles division was the hostile views he sometimes expressed about minorities and women. His performance evaluation in August 1985, which was made available to the New York Times by a member of the Simpson defense, noted he is outspoken and critical in his perception of the department's application of affirmative action. He has been counseled to leave his personal feelings at home and to make every effort to adhere to the affirmative action guidelines. He was also counseled by this rating lieutenant and captain regarding his very strong expression of his personal views regarding women and minorities in police work he was not receptive he stated he felt as an American citizen i.e. white man he had a right to express his views At the, all of that is in quotes by the way at the time some officers say the West Los Angeles division was known as a retirement assignment for white officers there are a bunch of old white guys who hate blacks and women at West LA. Mr. Bentley recalled being warned when he was assigned there. In Mr. Furman's case, some senior officers suspected he was a ringleader in an informal police group called Men Against Women that harassed new female officers in the division. On the tapes, Mr. Furman says that M.A.W. had a kill party and suggests that he participated, but nothing was ever proved about his involvement. I'll stop there. Like I said, there are many, many articles where this is talked about because this is a part of what was on the Furman tapes and <laughs> the totality of this why this is such in my opinion an egregious error omission both really I don't say his name is Mark Furman what I said before talk to us like we are Mark G.E.D. Furman all of that from someone who dropped out of high school got a GED attended not one not two but three community colleges and did not 
graduate has the audacity to complain about unqualified minorities and women on the police department. That's why, and for this time, that's why he should have been the cover boy for this book, (laughs) Mark Furman. All of this was news to you, Dr. Pierce? Most, well, the part about affirmative action, I didn't know about the women against violence or whatever. Men against women. It sounds, it sounds, yeah, sexist, racist, all of it. But what occurs to me, though, is when you were at the end, when you were saying that, you know, here's this guy who's like a GED, he's racist, he's sexist, all these things. Um, And then he's the one who's complaining about folks being unqualified. That's such a sort of trope that appears in the media, that it's usually somebody, and this is actually what they found when they did studies, that somebody who, the white person who's complaining and saying all these unqualified people is usually the person who is unqualified, that they are not in fact, there was a study that was done, a huge study by the Labor Department, where they investigated all the quote-unquote reverse discrimination cases that white people had submitted and found that something like 99% of them were untrue. When you looked into it, they were people who weren't very good at their job, who were disgruntled because they didn't get promoted. And so they blamed affirmative action. Lying master deceivers. I still go back to emphasize that is a major omission, uh, Dr. Pierce, because it, I mean, it's, that was such a, you mentioned the race card in the book. <laughs> like that's where that, why was that popular that OJ Simpson? And because so many people, oh, they just, no, no, Mark. That's not even talked about. You talked about the power of the media and how they frame things. That is totally omitted from the record. I don't think, I didn't know that. I had no idea. They didn't even release the contents, the full contents. That was a big part of the, the brawl. Can we really release all of this? Him complain. In fact, the judge for O.J. Simpson, Lance Ito, his white wife is one of the people Mark Furman is grousing about. Like, oh, my God, I forgot her name. But ah, uh, there's no count woman. Uh, she's not calling it all the rest. They're like, oh, this is going to prejudice the judge. He's going to be mad because he's talking trash about his wife. <laughs> he was in tears. Lance Ito was in tears talking about this in court, having to decide, is this going to be admissible and how much? And they never released the full volume it is so important because I don't think everybody, if everybody knew the full detail, yep, this guy hated women, men against women. That's the group he was in, long record. We got all these unqualified folks. And this is a white dude with a GED, a high school dropout. Now come back and ask me now, do I think this guy could have fabricated evidence against a black male? Hmm. Hmm. Do you see the logic of why I'm saying this is a major omission, Dr. Pierce? He is the innocent white male. Right? The question, though, just make sure 
Right. Just can we get an answer to that question, though, because this is important. Do you see what the logic of why I'm saying this is a major omission, Dr. Pierce? Uh, yes and no. I guess what I think is, I think there are some things that would have added, but he was not in the material I looked at that's about the debate. He was never discussed in the debate about affirmative action. He wasn't when there were, you know, articles back and forth about should there be affirmative action or not. Mark Furman's name didn't come up. Okay. If I'm just saying if you, you did go through the New York Times and you gave a count of articles or maybe you missed this one. Maybe the New York Times should have even more if you didn't include this because you give a count annually for articles in the New York Times and the San Francisco Chronicle that talk about affirmative action. Uh it might be there even more than that, but I think this one is important. I mean they called it the trial of the century and other than OJ this is like the central witness. He said the star witness. He bragged about it. The star witness is railing against affirmative action. And, and that's a part of what sent this to acquittal. This guy, I don't like Negras. I don't like women. All I think that is, you know, and because that's a part of what happened. This got omitted from the historical record. They blamed it on Furman. Ah, OJ did it anyway. Moving on. All right. Got that in. Thank you. Uh, the title, Racing for Innocence. You cribbed this one from uh, blackmail Randall Kingsley. Uh, guess, give us the details. What, is this, what does this here mean, Dr. Pierce? Racing for Innocence? Okay. Okay, that's not his actual name. That I use pseudonyms to protect people's confidentialities. But that's the name I use in the book, yes. Um, for him, it was basically that when he was in this workplace that white people would be nice to him, they would tell him that they were good white people, that they weren't racist, that they belonged to the ACLU, that kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, in their actual interactions with him, they would conveniently forget that they made an appointment to have lunch with him or they would, uh, wouldn't mentor him in the ways that he knew his white colleagues were being mentored. Or uh, there were a number of, I mean, a lot of for this kind of professional work, people are expected to go out for drinks and other kinds of things afterwards. And somehow he just wouldn't get invited. So he felt like that the, the, that the racing for innocence was, you know, I'm not a racist at the same time that I practice behavior that's racist. I practice exclusionary behavior. So it was a way of masking racist intent. I'm a good white person, just... Uh, restating for listeners, Dr. Pierce, I'm a good white person. You've misunderstood my black brother. We didn't forget to invite you. I voted for Obama three times, in fact. And I hate that no-count Trump, that sort of thing, even though he doesn't okay. get help. And he did right. get ignored. He did not get invited to the dinner, but they got lots of excuses. Well, no, 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 black brother. Definitely it's not racism. Definitely. Absolutely not. Racing for 
in a sense. Uh, who was the right. who, who was your intended uh, audience for this 2012 publication, Dr. Pierce? When I wrote it, I was really thinking about how to um, educate the general public about one what affirmative action actually is, because I think there's lots of misunderstanding about what affirmative action is, and two, I think really thinking about or trying to persuade white people to see themselves in the the experiences of some of these white attorneys. So, for example, uh, one of the things I talk about is how it is that these white attorneys weren't able to see, one, the things they were doing, but two, they even made up fictions about Randall. So when he left the firm and he left the firm in what's called kind of a lateral move, a job about the same as the one he had, about the same salary, um, they would say, you know, he cashed in on, quote unquote, all these um uh, you know, special, you know, big bucks for minorities at some job. He got some job better. They even they even said things like, you know, he's doing very well for himself. He drives a BMW when actually he drove a Japanese, you know, uh, economy car, which I know because he drove me to a BART station. So, so there there was even, there are all these ways that they retold stories about him that were very racist stories. Pause for Oscar Grant. Uh, wow, much obliged for the detail. And these are pseudonyms for listeners. Make sure we don't think there is a real Randall Kingsley out there. Uh, or maybe there is, but that's not the fellow we're talking about here, pseudonyms. Um, I will say, though, um, that phrasing that these white males, when they make the when they make up these stories about black people non-white people in the workplace and lie and forget them for lunch dates and that sort of thing lose documentation you talked about how he worked really hard on this report it's, oh man right. oh, no, he, mm, it disappeared <laughs> when they do all these things and they can't see i strongly submit that sort of language that's what i'm talking about it's very different as opposed to they do these things deliberately on purpose. to practice mm-hmm. racism, which, I mean, hey, this problem has been going on for centuries at some point, and even the metaphor, nobody here has a walking stick, I don't think anybody here has glasses or anything, they don't have a seeing eye dog, they got great vision, they can see, they are aware of what they're doing, they've been told they get upset when this gets brought up to them. That's in fact I even Absolutely. I had it in my brain computer, Dr. Pierce. Oh my goodness. You put Mark Furman on the witness stand with the title Racing for Innocence. What? I didn't do what what do you mean? I didn't do nothing. I didn't plant what what Maybe that's just me, but I was cracking up like, like that is the funniest thing I've ever seen. That is a New York Times bestseller right there. Just get my, what we I didn't do I'm, 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 do nothing plant nothing uh let's see uh so we got the explanation for the title you said you want to explain what affirmative action in fact man 
do that for us and do it for us like we are Mark G.E.D. Furman. We dropped out of high school. Explain in the context of your book, what is affirmative action? And, and make sure you include the part about, hey, egregious violations when this is supposed to kick in, yeah. Dr. Pierce. Sure, sure. Well, originally, affirmative action uh, was different from regular discrimination law. So in equal employment opportunity law, if someone discriminates against you at work on the basis of race, you can file a lawsuit against them. That's what the 1964 Civil Rights Act protects. You can file a lawsuit and the judge can award you damages and you can, you know, get money for whatever it was. You didn't get promoted. They treated you badly. Um, so that's how equal employment opportunity law works. And that's something that happens after discrimination happens, after it happened. Affirmative action is trying to do prevent discrimination. So it's basically workplaces are supposed to prevent discrimination before it happens. And so one example that comes up um, in the 1960s, many workplaces um, were able to just hire people through kind of the old white boy network. So if you wanted to hire another lawyer at your firm, you just called up your friend who's at another firm and or maybe teaches at a law school and says, do you have any students? So they didn't even sometimes advertise for jobs. So one of the things affirmative action did was not only ensure that jobs were actually advertised, but that there were attempts to reach out in your advertising. So you then didn't just advertise and, you know, the predominantly elite journals, but you reached out to associations where black lawyers might be or you or you published in journals that black, um, you know, law students might read to try and re- to increase the numbers in your pool so that you had more people. That's one way of doing affirmative action is working affirmatively to make the the possibility of this job available to people. But then uh, in, I think it's 1970, 70, 72, believe it or not, Richard Nixon comes up with this idea, his administration, I should say, comes up with this idea of what's called an underutilization analysis, underutilization analysis which is kind of a fancy way of saying that you have, say, a workplace that's a predominantly white workplace, and you are underutilizing people of color. And if you live in a region, and I lived for many years in the San Francisco Bay Area, where, you know, the population of African Americans is about 13%, then you should try and have, if there are, say you're recruiting lawyers, you should try for or to aim for or create a goal of hiring African-American lawyers who are close to the number or percentage of African-Americans 
in that regional area. Does that make sense? In other words, you're trying to um, you're trying to match your workplace to what the regional area is like. Now, this is where it gets tricky because uh, let's say uh, this firm has been found uh, not to have hired African Americans or not very many. So they're they're trying to recruit more people to get into the pool. They and they've done that. Then they get to the hiring process, and this is I think where things get get very subjective. And are they going to hire more African Americans? Are they going to hire more Latinos, Asian Americans? What are they going to do? How are they going to do that? And if they decide not to, in this particular case, hire African Americans, um, probably the first time or the second time, they wouldn't be found, there wouldn't be any kind of problem. But if they kept doing it over time, then they would be considered not complying with the law, that they were reproducing racism, basically, in this particular workplace. Um, so that's how affirmative action works. Uh, but there's a special exception that goes from goals to quotas. And this is very rare. It happens in very rare instances. But it happens in legal cases. For example, there was a big one in the 70s against um, AT&T. And AT&T was found guilty of what lawyers call egregious discrimination uh, for sex and race discrimination. And literally at the time they had, they kept filing cabinets and this is how they got in trouble. They literally kept filing cabinets and there were certain jobs that were mostly white men and there were other jobs that were uh, all women, and they weren't, they were making sure that if women applied, they were kind of, what's the word, uh, pushed towards these jobs for women and not considered for the men, men's jobs. Likewise, when people who were African American applied or Latino applied, they were pushed away from these uh, jobs that were mostly white men and encouraged to go into lower levels of um, the company. So this, they got busted basically. And there was what was called a consent decree. And a consent decree is the only time, and this is when there's been a finding of egregious discrimination. A consent decree is the only time that, uh, and it's set up by a court, that a court can require that quotas be set. And because particularly in places um, like New York and the Bay Area, New York City and the Bay Area, where there were significant Black and Latino populations, but they weren't working at the phone company, um, they felt like they had to force the company to hire people by establishing quotas. Um, so that's I, that's the different kinds of affirmative action. 
awesome Dr. Pierce. Listeners out there, if you have questions, feel free to dial in. Uh, I think it's so important, uh, number one, and you point this out in the book, that affirmative action, except in those cases, cases of egregious discrimination, white supremacy, racism, it is what they call good faith. We tried our best. You know, we went out to get some minorities, so-called, you know, some women and all the rest. Hey, they didn't show up or whatever. We did the best we could. And, you know, we got what we got. So, well, we'll, we'll try better next year. And, and good faith uh, that this is only hard quotas and that sort of thing where there's been some sort of egregious finding of you have consistently what you got the two separate filing cabinets, women, regular folks. He, she didn't even say that they had the pile for the niggers. So, I mean, eh. um, egregious and you get busted doing that, as she said, then, OK, now you're going to have to do something to correct this uh, because you all are willfully practicing racism, white supremacy. Uh, I think and I think that's important. The this is not willy nilly just going out and making people do this. The good faith so-called we did our best. Is that correct? Dr. Pierce? That's correct. That's okay. correct. Yeah. Grand. All right. For our listeners out there, don't think we're bogging down in politics. And actually, for listeners, if you are addicted to screen time, this may be a sneaky book to interest you because there are a lot of films. And when I say a lot of films, the appendix has a whole rack of films about racism. And then if you read the book, there's analyses of different films, some of them that we've talked about before. Uh, I was a little bit surprised, but then, eh, eh, eh. Uh, so Rocky is one that we've talked about. I just sound clip. That's such an important film in the canon of white supremacy, racism, which you explain in the book. Yeah. Uh, but I had not thought about it in terms of affirmative action and the white victim. Can you kind of recontextualize the great Sylvester Stallone, uh, Rocky, in the context of your book and the white victim? Okay, so the first Rocky movie, and I have to admit, I've only seen only the first one, but in the first Rocky movie, he's the underdog training, 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 training. And in the final scenes of the film, the white underdog goes up against Apollo Creed, who's black. And the, there's, a, there's a scene where they're, they're exchanging punches and he gets this really one good blow and actually breaks Creed's rib, um, but he doesn't win the bout. And so my, my interpretation is that in this backlash against affirmative action, uh, he becomes, Stallone becomes the white male victim and who loses to the black man. So it's like affirmative action. The sort of the stories that are circulating about affirmative action at the time, that affirmative action is somehow taking jobs away from white people and white men are victims. And this film came out uh, the same year that the Bakke decision, which became a Supreme Court decision, but was first a California decision. It was the first decision that greatly impacted 
affirmative action policy. And in the Bakke decision, this man named Alan Bakke was trying to get into the medical school at the University of California at Davis. And he didn't get in, and he claimed that he was, that it was reverse discrimination, and he didn't get in. Um, and people of color, Latinos and Blacks, got in that were less qualified than he. You've heard this argument. So... Um, it goes so so you have these uh narratives circulating about affirmative action at the same time that you have this rocky film and this is sort of the early critique i think or the introduction i would say of the white male as a victim it kind of emerges at this particular time and the actual backlash doesn't happen until later, but part of what I'm trying to show is that this Rocky film is the introduction of this particular trope of white male victimhood and um, black advantage. Fascinating context of white supremacy. Dr. Jennifer L. Pierce, classified as a white woman. Man, that is... uh... Mm. I had not thought of that film in that manner, the white victim and, oh, we can't catch a break, man. The system is <laughs> like that. But 1976, like that's, whew, that is, uh, that is a fast, I mean, this film front that they're still making films in this franchise today, like Sylvester Stallone is still no, rolling. Unbelievable. How many films yeah. in the system of white supremacy. And I even point that out. Some of the, the major, major franchises that have sticking power, like, Rocky, Planet of the Apes. Many of these are kind of directly Terminator, Dr. Kevorkian, Mm -hmm. are directly, super directly tied to white supremacy racism. You kind of begin the book with this whole white victim, which is so it's normally the white female victims like uh, Carolyn Bryant Donham uh, recently departed and we got to go shoot down Emmett Till because we got to protect our white women but now the the white male uh, victim uh, mm-hmm. it just you talk about how this really kicked that's why I said it's such an egregious error Mark Furman and the collective white victim of this Negro killed two white people he killed a white woman and he's Innocent? Oh, yeah. Are you serious? The system is rigged. He put like um, egregious omission, Doctor Pierce. Uh, I want to play a clip from American History X, which is also a film we've talked about before. I'd seen before, but I'd neglected. Like, dang, they got that whole naked scene about affirmative action. Like, well, because this, I think, is. I had not considered in a movie that's about explicit white supremacy, racism, like Nazis, Hitler, uh, the salute, yeah. all of that. They curb stomp a black may. I mean, it's as vile as you can get. Swastikas, all of that. This is almost at the clock. Like you've watched a whole lot of racism by the time you get to this for them to say, dang, you know, I think the racism started someplace earlier. So this is a scene Ed, the great Ed Norton. Everybody remember, know him, Hollywood great. So Ed Norton, mm-hmm. as a teenager, he's sitting down for a meal, family dinner uh, with his mother, white mother, whole white family, and his dad, who is a fire 
fighter who for the context for people who haven't seen he's a firefighter who's a white male firefighter who is eventually killed by negro crackheads just for context so this is a flashback in the movie to when he was still alive uh, and they have a conversation the young ed norton has a black male teacher and he's teaching them about richard wright's native son which also features a near black racist uh, he kills a white woman so it's pretty close anyway but they read native son and they have a conversation about negro literature and affirmative blackshin what nothing it's just you know it's everywhere i look now what this affirmative blackshin honey a few new books doesn't qualify as affirmative black action Hey, read the book, Ace the Guy's Test. Just don't swallow everything he feeds you whole. You know, just because you see it on the evening news. No, but like what? All this stuff about making everything equal, it's not that simple. Look, now you got this book, Native Son. You know, what happened to the other books in the course? They're not any good anymore because Mr. Two PhD says they are? <laughs> huh? I mean, you got to trade in great books for black books? Does that make sense? Huh? You got to question these things, Dare. You got to look at the whole picture. You know, we're talking about books here. But I'm also talking about my job. I got two black guys on my squad now who got their job over a couple of white guys who actually scored higher in the test. Does that make sense? Huh? Yeah, sure, everything's equal now. But I got two guys watching my back, responsible for my life, who aren't as good as two other guys. You only got the job because they were black, not because they were the best. That, that sucks. Yeah. Is that what America's about? No, America's about best man for the job you do your best you get the job you know this affirmative action crap i don't know what that's about there's like some hidden agenda or something going on you see what i'm saying yeah i do i don't know i didn't think about it like that well this guy though i don't know dr sweet he comes on like so strong it's it's kind of hard not to listen to him but i don't know maybe some of what he says is kind of it's bullshit yeah Context of white supremacy. You present that, hey, there are just a rash of these films that erupt during the 1990s. I even think you left out an important one. Do you remember... Uh, the great with To Kill a Mockingbird's Robert Duvall falling down. Do you remember that one from, I think, 1993? No, I don't know that one. Oh, my. Let me give you the quick what, synopsis, um, but you can tell us okay. about how they're just a rash. There's so many, you can't see them all. It's like the affirmative action articles. So, falling down, uh, Robert Duvall, Boo Ratley from <laughs> Killing Mockingbird, falling down is about a white man played by. Michael Douglas, he works for mm -hmm. the Department of Defense. He get, he loses his job and he gets divorced. He gets stuck in traffic in California, no less. He gets stuck in traffic and he basically <laughs> has a total lose it. I'm done. Uh, nah. And so he, he leaves his car, abandons his vehicle and, and is walking. He has a restraining order. His wife has a restraining order. She, he can't go see his wife and children. So he's upset about that, too. It's his daughter's birthday, white daughter's birthday. He breaks out of his car. He starts walking. The first people that he 
encounters are non-white and they're like some sort of oh no the first person he encounters is a Korean merchant he wants to buy a soda so that he can go call his family on the payphone dinosaur times the Korean merchant says I think the soda is going to be like 85 cents or something he's like what that won't leave me enough money to make my call anyway the white man gets a baseball bat or no he yes he eventually he takes a baseball bat assaults the Korean merchant breaks up his merchandise he leaves Next, he encounters a group uh. of non-white Latino males, and they try to mug him of his briefcase. He gets upset. He grabs his bat, assaults them, takes a switchblade from them, and demands that they clear his path, which they do. He proceeds, and it's just violence and mayhem. In fact, it's totally your theme. He even encounters an explicit white supremacist who makes all these comments about faggots and female officers like Mark Furman, like, why don't they call you officer S's, you know, like all of this stuff. And he's got Nazi memorabilia and all this, but he looks out for the white guy. They've almost made a sound clip. They have such a poignant scene. This guy, and he's in like full Nazi regalia who, and he saves our white uh, vigilante here. He saves him because the police are going to arrest him. Uh, and he says, we're just alike. And the white main character says, we're not alike. I'm like, yes, you are. You work for the Department of Defense. You are. You do the exact same thing. But anyway, he continues trying to stalk his wife and she runs with their daughter, blah, blah, blah. And Robert Duvall, incidentally, is a police officer who is trying to pursue him. Dr. Welsing did a counter-racist analysis of this film. Oh, my goodness. White male angst. We're lo- I'm it's losing my not- job. I'm losing my family. I'm losing my children. All these non-white people are coming in and taking over and uh, I'm going to kill everybody which is what he does until the police kill him but that's falling and then even then falling <laughs> down falling down what year did it come out 1993 the same year as Waco uh, okay it sounds like it has every possible racist stereotype in it too so yeah it, white male angst for sure for the entire uh, decade uh, I guess before I pivot, I was I was going to get to Ward Connolly, but just to make sure we we ditch the whole film batch. There are lots of these films in the 1990s: white innocent people getting robbed by the system, and somehow they can't catch a break. And crooked black people like the NAACP who mm-hmm. manipulate the system, a la Johnny Cochran, O.J. Simpson. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also mentioned the importance of earlier films like To Kill a Mockingbird, which is also um, very mm-hmm. familiar with. Seen the movie. All of that, mm-hmm. Boo Radley. Mm-hmm. I think there is an important, might be deliberate misreading of that book, film, Harper Lee's book, adapted to a really popular film, 1960s, right there. You talk about it in the book, the importance of this film. Atticus Finch, the white lawyer in this uh, film, uh, who is also Gregory Peck Superman uh, at that time, uh, the white lawyer, he takes on the case for Tom Robbins in Alabama 1930s. He's been accused of raping a white woman. He's going to take on this case in spite of all the abuse and everything that he encounters. I've said for years, isn't Atticus Finch racist? And people say, that's, you know, and even when I give my explanation, well, I'll ask you before I even proceed. Do you, what do you think, Dr. Pierce? Is Atticus Finch racist in To Kill a Mockingbird? Yeah. yeah, I think I think he is different from the characters I look in the at the '90s films, who are sort of 
uh, how to say it, blind to racism, and then suddenly they see it and they become the anti-racist white hero who's going to save people of color from, you know, whatever. With Atticus Finch, it seems more like he knows this is a racist town. He knows that nobody's going to defend Tom Robinson because it's a racist town, and he's going to step forward and do it. Um, So I don't know that he is completely non-racist, but I think he's different in that he sees the system for what it is. He sees that this guy is getting messed over by the system, that he's falsely accused, and he understands that. But tell me, I'm curious why you think he's racist. What what does he do in particular that you think is racist? Because the whole book is told, you know, from the daughter's perspective. So it's like this innocent kid who doesn't quite get everything that's going on, although she sort of does over time. But anyway, but I'm curious why you think he is. Uh, just for listeners, because we talked about this before, I did not get an answer to the question. Um, I got that from your book, and this was kind of a, a yes or no one. So, is Atticus Finch racist? Oh, I think, I think, yeah, yeah. No, I don't think he is. I okay. think he takes on something that people want. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. She says he is not racist. Uh, now, I said kind of easily, yes, he would have to be. Now, people that say well that's crazy Gus he worked for this guy's case blah, 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 and all this I say okay what about Calpurnia people who haven't read the book watch the film Calpurnia black female she's the help when he goes off to work and right. he goes to guard uh, Tom Robbins black male when he's incarcerated he guards him from the white rogues racists who are going to kill him lynch him uh, Calpurnia she stays with his white children scout Jim, make sure that they're safe, unharmed, all that good, even though she doesn't do a good job because they sneak off. But either way, she stays there to make sure that they're good. Uh, and I say, man, so this is 1930s Alabama. Matter of fact, pause for the Grandcester. Oh, in a book that does mention Rosa, Park by, Rosa Parks by name, in Rosa Parks, mm-hmm. Alabama, mm-hmm. the same Rosa Parks mm-hmm. who wrote explicitly, hey, I do not want to work as the help for a white person because I could be raped. That's Rosa Parks for folks who need to do their research. Alabama, Rosa Parks. So for Calpurnia, this is the glossed up Hollywood version. I'm going to think that Calpurnia is getting great wages, great dental plan, holiday pay, all of that. That's what I'm going to think about Calpurnia in Rosa Parks, Alabama in the 1930s. That's why I say, isn't Atticus Finch a racist? Okay. Okay, Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Do you remember Calpurnia? Is she in the book? Did I make up her? Oh, absolutely. No, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it's interesting because what you're saying, because I think she is a figure that's often forgotten. And one of the things I think that, that, you know, in sort of the writing about To Kill a Mockingbird in general, there's this sort of, what's, I, I think I write, maybe write about this or in another article, but how Atticus is sort of the sort of goodness of Atticus. 
he's so good to take this case. He's so good to be a single dad, blah, blah, blah. But we forget that. But he doesn't have to be a single dad because he has someone there to take care of the kids and make dinner and take care of the house and do all these kinds of things. So, yeah, I hadn't thought about that before. That's a really good point. Nobody thinks about Calpurnia. Even people who identify as feminists do not. I've never heard anyone who say immediately, yep, Calpurnia, like, of course. And I mean, just what I said, the same way with the Help 2011 or Gone with the yeah. Wind, we always get the gussied up version of Calpurnia at all. So, I mean, really, Rosa Parks, I'm going to take her word about what it's like to be Calpurnia in Alabama in 1930, maybe even I think, 2020. Yeah, no, I'm thinking this. Yeah, no, it's making me think like a whole way, different way of talking about this book. But anyway. Oh, and, I, and I even really the other side, at this point, it should be unanimous, and in fact, it should be, dang, that Gus T. is an amazing literary scholar, because I was saying this before the sequel was published in 2015, where everyone was horrified that, oh, yes, Atticus because Finch is, Atticus racist, is racist, and he does not like yeah. black children going to school. Like, duh, what happened to Calpurnia? Why would you think he is a non-racist white yeah. person in Alabama at any time? Duh, you should have been expecting that, but I didn't hear that. But that was a bestseller, yeah. go, tell a, go Set a Watchman. But that was a no, big no, controversy. That's a that's a, yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, one of the things that occurs to me is I, there is something, and I think Hollywood thinks about these kind of things. Their directors think about how to appeal to white audiences, and they want to have, like, okay, if we're going to talk about racism, then we're going to have these, you know, feel good white characters who like they made some mistakes. They didn't understand it. Now they see, really see, you know, they're good people. And I, and I, I think, you know, you get this, that Atticus will take the case. So he's a good person. He's going to help Tom Robinson. And then I think in all the sort of nineties films that we talk about, uh, it's, it's the same kind of, feel good thing like see really just i think the most accurate way you use right. the word stories the yeah i'm sorry you, but they're but they're fictions right they're fictions right it's like the civil rights movement in these films disappears uh and you're right i mean in i can't remember it's in well mississippi burning but also um some of the others Go it's like anybody attacked civil rights movement is just becomes like this side character or else they are, you know, corrupt and trying to manipulate things. There's nothing, I mean, there, you know, this is the whole, it's all about the individual, right? It's not about the, the collectivity that produced to challenge the status quo. So anyway, sorry, I'm going on and on, but I, I think it's, but I think that. That that's an important point. Much obliged. Much obliged. Efficiency. We will shoot for that one. Uh, context of white supremacy, Dr. Jennifer L. Pierce. Uh, and and I, the white individuals, I think, it, at least in my terms, you use the word, these are fictions, which is true, uh, and stories. Mm -hmm. uh, I think mm -hmm. stories especially, that is a synonym, a way of softening the term lie. White people are very good at lying, particularly 
the power, mm-hmm. the mythology of a good white person, a non-racist white person. That's even why I said Mark Furman mm-hmm. is so important. And even because it reminded me yeah. this time period, not the fictions that are coming about, about all these white victims and mm, what was me? And then they get it somehow. And then they join the struggle for diversity and to help their colored brothers and sisters. What you saw in the 1990s, and she even mentioned Columbine, or excuse me, Colorado, that's what you said, sorry. I said Columbine, but 90s, Mark Furman, the only thing that bumped O.J. Simpson off the front page of the paper during 1995 for a few minutes was Tim McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing, which also could have popped in this book just because, in my view, that is much more accurate to what you have here. White people describe uh, he bombed a federal building. We got all this government yeah. overreach, them trying to tell us what we're going to do. I will fix your way. And Tim McVeigh reading the Turner Diaries, which talked about that explicitly in white supremacy. And you are doing all this government overreach to look out for minorities and chumping us white white victimhood is right there in the Turner Diaries. That's another egregious omissions on those two. And hold on, this is important because that Hollywood nonsense is not true. Looking at the truth of the matter, that's why we're at where we are right now. January 6th, Trump, what the term that they use, you said it, white nationalism. Why we got to be scared? Are we going to have power and electricity? Is there going to be an attack on the power grid going all the way back? In fact, we were reading O.J. Simpson and Mark Furman in January 2021 at the time of January 6th. I pulled up newspaper articles from 1995 and it said, oh, my God, the threat of right wing extremism. They're coming to D.C. to march with guns. And I said, you got to be joking. We, this is all recorded like you have got to be just like they've been talking about this for 26 years and have made no. Pro- That's why I said that is way more accurate to the point as opposed yeah. to Atticus Finch, yeah. innocent white people. It's Columbine, Jeff Dahmer, yeah. Peyton Gendron, Uvalde. Yeah, that's much more likely what you're going to see. And that's what we've seen for 25 years. Yes, Dr. Pierce. I, yes, I agree. I agree. And I think, I mean, to add to that, not only do we, in 2006, we have white nationalists storming the Capitol, but nobody does anything to them. I mean, I live in Minneapolis. I saw people getting mowed down by tanks and co- police cars and things for protesting. None of that happened in D.C. None of that. And, you know, there's no question. It's because it was white guys, right? They're not going to do that to white guys. So it's, yeah. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of white women out there for January 6th, too. We've had whole sound clips uh, putting that together yes, as well. There there were. Yeah, thank you for reminding me. Yeah, yes, ma'am. Were. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Ward Connolly, let's make sure, because he was a key figure in the 1990s, although way less important than Mark Furman and Oriental James. What's the, or I guess, who is Ward Connolly and what is the significance okay. of Ward Connolly leading the charge in California to do away with affirmative action? Okay. Yeah, Ward Connolly got a ton of attention 
nationally and in California because he was a black businessman and a regent for the University of California. And the regents are like this sort of board of governors who tell the university what to do um, and how to, you know, do their budget and things like that. So I think for white people who were already opposed to affirmative action, it's like, great, we have this black man who says he opposes affirmative action, you know, great, he can be, you know, our front man. He can, you know, he can go make this argument and no one can call us racist. So I think that's that's part of the significance of Ward Connerly. Um, and, and he went on to help uh, start uh, a right-wing think tank that, you know, basically started up anti-affirmative action campaigns in other states around the country. He, I should add, he was not the only one. Um, there was a number of people involved in that, but he did that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our guests many times on this program, Neely Fuller Jr., he used the term uh, racial showcasing, uh, where White mm-hmm. people can place a non-white person in a position, make it seem, oh, yes, this person is in charge or they're a partner at the company or whatever. They're leading the movement, uh, especially something like this. Great. Like, hey, this is not racist. We got yeah. a black person, Ward Connolly, who, you know, exactly. he thinks affirmative action is lame and no count. And yeah, that lead the charge, Ward. You got it. Man. And incidentally, for listeners, Ward Connolly, I believe, married to a white woman, if that means anything to anybody significant. Yay, nay. Yeah. Uh, let's see the what shall I the significance the Vietnam veteran I said that that's Mark Furman to Mark G. D. Furman who is Vietnam veteran Robert Pollock and what's the significance of his case okay in the book and if he has the significance beyond this I don't know this but in the book he's in he is a Vietnam vet who claims that he didn't get a job or contract because he was white. And so he was discriminated against because he was white, reverse discrimination. Um, and then I think his story as a vet is supposed to be doubly, um, what's the word, um, bad because vets should get you know, all this respect for having fought in, the, fought in whatever war they fought in and supported the country. They're patriotic, all those kinds of things. So, so it's sort of, it's this kind of doubled thing. But if there's something else about him, I don't know if you have something in mind. Uh, I think he's just the double whammy. Everyone wants a veteran. How can we treat a veteran this way? Yeah. Um, to re- that white injured white man and we've got to come out and this is what a disgrace that this is uh, to pass him over this it segues right into the other one that I thought was more important even uh, more so I think it was just Pollock was on the same page so I might have got confused about really it's the Tom Wood uh, example I'll share a tad bit for listeners so this is a direct oh it's in the same report that's how I got there oh so you, you write this is uh 
after losing a coveted teaching job to mon- to a minority woman, now that's a rare one, Tom Wood has turned his private frustration into a public crusade that threatens to end America's 30-year experiment with affirmative action. He was a candidate for a job teaching philosophy at a California university. He had no doubt that he was the most qualified for the post. Then came a development he had considered unthinkable. A member of the search committee told him, you know, Tom, it sounds to me as though you'd probably just waltz into this job if you were the right race or the right sex. Now that in and of itself is worth a mighty har har har, lots of rolling on the floor laughing my behind off, or at minimum, I'm going to have to check out this guy Tom's story. Like you're saying that you being a white man was a disadvantage for the job? <laughs> like, uh, uh, what what was the fallout with Mr. Wood, Dr. Pierce? Well, well, the fallout with uh, Dr. Wood, again, he was one of these unqualified white men who was crying wolf when he didn't get a job. He had, you know, compared to the person who actually got hired, he hadn't published for years. He went to, you know, not a great school. I don't think he was a great teacher. But but the interesting thing is there was this fact-checking that was done after the afterwards, after this article came out, that basically Tom Woods was a fraud. Of course, Tom Woods didn't get hired. He wasn't good at what he did. But... That all came out later, and the story that stays in everybody's mind is this, you know, sad story, this poor white guy, blah, 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 he's injured by affirmative action. Um, And I think the question that then has to be asked is, why wasn't the media at the time doing a better job of fact-checking these stories? Because they would tell, and you know, I found hundreds and hundreds of these stories that were that start out with some white guy claiming that he had lost a job or didn't get a promotion or something because of affirmative action, but no, but nobody ever fact checked it. That's what he said. But did that really happen? Who actually got hired? Who actually got promoted? You know, so I think that's a very typical thing. But again, I think it's a way the media really played on the anxieties of white men in that particular historical time mm-hmm. and probably continues to do so. Hmm. Uh, wow. Just uh, in terms of the, the fact checking that did not happen. Mm-hmm. And, and I view that the mm-hmm. rules do not apply during that same time period. Good old Timothy McVeigh when they went and investigated, how did this happen? Went and bombed a federal building and killed all these people. They said, oh, wow, he went to buy the supplies for the bombs, and they were supposed to check his identification. They did not. They did not. Hmm. Well, also, I don't know if you remember, when that building was first bombed, they were convinced they, they were absolutely convinced that some, like a person of color had done it. Mm-hmm. It like took some convincing that it was Timothy McVeigh, the white guy who did it. 
right? Yes. So there was this sort of automatic racist assumption that the person who had done this was not white. Absolutely. We absolutely. In fact, there's a whole book that connects Timothy yeah. McVeigh to O.J. Simpson and the racism within the department and the Mark Furman. And oh, my God, we did such a good job. I take ah, that was our best book study. O.J. Simpson. Oh, anyway, but you write uh, the New York or the fact that prime media failed to fully investigate Woods claims suggest not only sloppy research but also the media's willing and in my view that's white people because I mean we're not Al Sharpton and Johnny Cochran are not in charge of the New York Times and <laughs> Time Magazine so white people's willingness they weren't. They weren't. To, I, I don't think so I could be mistaken but white people's yeah. willingness to yeah. grant legitimacy yeah. to white statements about affirmative action and their eagerness to construct sensational headlines about white male injury wood himself was mentioned in numerous articles both locally in san francisco oh, and in national publications such as time magazine and the washington post i'm just pausing because that's the same time magazine that darkened up O.J. Simpson even before he had a trial. They call that a presumption of innocence. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. in their influential book, Black Image in the White Mind, media scholars Robert Entman and Andrew Rojecki suggested that one of the reasons for this media bias racism might be that journalists themselves may be the may be one of the group's most hostile to affirmative action further they observed that it was psychologically comforting for white professionals to blame their failure to gain promotions on something other than themselves and affirmative action served as a convenient scapegoat for their thwarted desires in a highly competitive field now even that it stack I want to get your response, but to me, that even that sounds like I'm doing some lying, and I know that these black people are not responsible, but I at least I don't want to say that I'm lame and I cheated my way through college and old singer hooked me up and I don't know I can't even spell journalism like my God as opposed to that. I'm just blaming on these old black people. You minorities have taken everything and <laughs> I'm an old no count wife. Even that that's not a blind spot. I'm just lying. I just like to lie and blame black people for things that I know they haven't done. What do you think, Dr. Pierce? Yeah, since I didn't interview them, I can't, you know, state it as baldly as you have. <laughs> but I think Part of that's part of what goes on that people construct these elaborate lies to make them feel good about themselves and they're racist lies right they're telling themselves these stories that oh well you know this is what's going on but there was I mean as I found there was absolutely a slant in the way stories were told in the New York Times and the San Francisco Chronicle, a slant that was biased against affirmative action. And I did very close readings of all these articles, and there was absolutely bias over and over again for the, the 
uh, anti-affirmative action position. So they would mention, for sure, they would mention the other side of the argument and talk about it a little bit. But the the great greatest part would be focused on the anti-affirmative action arguments. And anti-affirmative action, in quotes, anti-black people will nab the specifics because that's one of the most important points of the book. Um, I just I'm going in order of your chapters here. So you start out with uh, this corporation where you go back and you're doing a study over, I guess, a decade. You start out the beginning of the 90s and talk to these folks, white people, non-white people, males, females, their work experience. These are attorneys, by the way, for our listeners. Uh, And then you come back a decade later. Even that, like, wow, that is so extraordinary to have access to some of these folks and be able to talk to them and all the rest of it, like extraordinary the power of a white woman uh, or a white man, but we're talking to a white woman in this case, like, wow. So she's able to talk to these folks and kind of analyze their views about affirmative action over, you know, over a good decade uh, to see how they've changed or what have you and where they are in their careers and that sort of thing. Uh, you start out, this is on page 66, chapter three of Racing for innocence, uh, writing about one of the experiences for a black male, uh, you write psychoanalytic theory is also relevant for thinking about how memories change over time, a process that Freud called secondary revision involving the relationship between fantasy and memory and the role that screen memories can play in blocking out other memories. In Freud's understanding, we sometimes repress actual memories because they are too embarrassing or painful to remember and then, through fantasy, substitute them with others that we come to understand as true even though they did not happen. Lie. As I argue in the BC Corporation pseudonym for this uh, law firm, uh, the BC Corporation workplace screen memories among white lawyers function to create stories that's what i say they use stories is a euphemism for lie uh stories and she has it in quotes about attorneys of color stories that operate collectively as gossip their gossip in turn serves to penalize those whose behavior does not fit workplace norms i thought this was so important because we talk about workplace dynamics all the time and these nasty racist rumors and things that are totally just lies. Uh, can you talk about how this, can you talk about the, how this impacts a work dynamic? Well, I think what happens is it, be, it becomes a very hostile climate. It or became a very hostile climate for the black lawyers who were there. And one of the problems that was ongoing in this legal office was that they would hire black attorneys and they would be around for a while and then they would leave. And it was pretty clear once I started doing interviews, why? Because the white attorneys were, you know, were making no effort to support, mentor, include black attorneys in social events and mentoring in any of those kinds of things. But at the same time, they were unwilling to see their role in doing that. 
And so I think this kind of goes back to something you said earlier, Gus, because when I talk to them, you know, they tell me things they see. I am suspicious many times that there's more going on than what they're telling me. Um, And I talk about in the book a bit about how I feel like sometimes there's something unsettling the stories they're telling me. Because as I ask them more and more questions about affirmative action, about race, about the high turnover in the department of black lawyers, they get increasingly uncomfortable. Uh, They, you know, will tell me things like, oh, I, you know, they'll say vague things like I'm feeling, feel like I'm walking around eggshells or, well, I feel like I can't tell certain kinds of jokes. And when I start pressing, do you mean you can't tell a racist joke, a sexist joke? What do you mean? They just get really vague and won't answer my questions. Um, So, you know, there's something going on. They don't want to tell me. And I think what happens is a certain point is they assumed because I'm a white woman, that I, I, I'm guessing many of them assumed that I would oppose affirmative action. But as I asked more questions, I suspect they began to think, oh, she's, she's critical of what I'm saying. Oh, she's not agreeing with me. Oh, she's pushing me. And then they just got vague and wouldn't answer questions or answered them in such vague ways it was hard to figure out what they really thought about things. Hmm. Fascinating. I, that, I encounter that all the time on this program. That's why the acronym MOO-OPUSCATE is that first O. That is deliberate. And I liken that metaphor alert, and it's deliberate too. I liken that to when you speak to a criminal like a child rapist and you say like when they asked Jerry Sandusky now convicted child rapist they say hey are you mm-hmm. attracted to young boys uh, uh, attracted to you? uh, uh, what do you mean am I uh, that sort of thing where you can't mm-hmm. be no it's got to be all this any criminal I'm uncomfortable talking about my criminal enterprise like you're not even supposed to be asking me questions about this that's the same thing racism white supremacy like child rape is a criminal enterprise white people I'm going to read from the text this is on page 68 chapter 3 this is her conversation pseudonyms Jason Weidman 37 year old white male lawyer Uh, his wife is also an attorney power couple Uh, so he says you know this is all in quotes you know I think just about everyone knows there are times when we have screwed up with minority lawyers, but all the talk goes on behind closed doors. Everyone is afraid of another lawsuit, and we're supposed to present this united front to the general public. You know, diversity is excellent, and all that. So, you know. People don't talk about these things in a public way. It's more like a conversation over lunch or in someone's office. You continue, I'm skipping a few lines, moreover his comments about what white people talk about over lunch 
or in someone's office suggest that strong boundaries existed between public discourse and personal disclosures. Furthermore, I suspect that conducting interviews at a historical moment when colorblindness is assumed to have been achieved made it all the more difficult to talk candidly or openly about racial matters. As sociologist Howard Winnett observes, one of the hallmarks of the neoconservative construction of colorblind discourse has been that every invocation of racial significance manifests race thinking and is thus suspect. In other words, mentioning race at all suggests that one is racist. Now you include some of the dialogue where you press him and I found it fascinating that the first thing that he gets through and he's like, man, we have to be careful walking on eggshells, blah, blah. And you said, well, what, what do you mean exactly that she can't say? The first thing he says is racist jokes, comments or racist jokes that used to be okay. That's what has him feeling like he's walking around on eggshells. Now I found this fascinating for two and they both make the same point. Even the fact that this starts with, Hey, we, this company, we were guilty of egregious uh, discrimination, white supremacy, Mm -hmm. racism. So we got to be careful that one suggests, as I said before, white people are not ignorant. They're not blind. They're aware, Mm -hmm. as we spoke with Dr. Joe Fegan, who you reference in your book, two-faced racism. Mm -hmm. Hey, you can't do that stuff now. So we got to that. We are very aware. We've been coached. You save all your racist jokes for once the Negroes are gone. Okay, now we can get down to it. (laughs) All this is cute and funny. And then when he gets to, so what, what has got you all uncomfortable? Racist jokes? I mean, Mm -hmm. why is that the most important? I I mean, help me understand, Dr. Pierce. What do you think? No, I I agree. I mean, no, you picked something. I remember when I was doing that interview, and I just, I couldn't believe he said that. First of all, I was thinking, like, you know, you have walking around in eggshells, really? What? Like, you're a white guy. You're in charge. Everybody listens to you. So I, I didn't get that part. And then when he said racist jokes, I'm like, really? I mean, this, I'm thinking, you know, I'm trying to be the good interviewer, listen to what he says, you know, but I, but the part about racist jokes, I didn't even know if I really, like, really, that's what's so hard about work? Really? Are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. Um, But I think, again, this goes to the point that you're making about, you know, is this deliberate or not? This is what they were willing to tell me, right? And in certain ways, Jason, the one who told me about the company and all of that, was really the most honest. The others were the ones who kind of drifted off into these well, you can't say this, you can't say that, it makes me feel uncomfortable, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think, the, I, I do think there is this notion that the rules have changed and the rules definitely benefited white men in this workplace. The rules have changed. They're supposed to be changing their hiring practices. They're supposed to be hiring more women. They're supposed to be hiring more people of color. 
Um, and what comes with that are other kinds of conversations that they're not really used to having. And so, I, and I, and I think this is, you know, typical. Most white people just don't have a clue how to talk about race or racism. They, they think it's like the worst, you know, criticism you could possibly make of someone. Uh, they're afraid that they'll be called that. And, you know, they'll back out and back out to do anything so they don't get called that, as opposed to just, like, have a conversation. Think about the things you did. Think about how this could have hurt people. Think about how you could do it differently next time. Maybe say you're sorry. You know, the most simple kinds of things. And then you have to add to that that I interviewed lawyers who are very argumentative usually. Um, They like to win their arguments. And here I am, you know, this researcher who has arrived, and I'm asking questions that they don't really like, and they want to get rid of me. And one of them does. I mean, he basically dismisses me from his office. I'm just I'm pointing this out for non-white people, victims of racism, listening to the program. Dr. Pearson, her response, she said that white people don't have a clue how to talk about race. We're back to one of the most familiar tropes. It's back to what I said, that somehow white people are ignorant about racism, white supremacy, and particularly particularly in this context, because it was white people getting uncomfortable, the metaphor of eggshells, white white fertility too, cracking of white eggs. So they gotta walk around on mm-hmm. eggshells. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because we can't tell racist jokes, which I just said, hey, that's I'm not ignorant. In fact, I have said for years, we've been on the air fourteen years, all the way Dr. Joe Fegan we spent a good chunk of time racist jokes particularly aimed at black people and going over the significance of that and even this time last year dr raul perez his book the soul of white jokes and talking about the significance of racist jokes where they have studies people white people search racist jokes on average about the same level that they searched the LA Lakers, Kobe Bryant. Wow. This was in the economist. This was not some ragtag subscription. So that again, confirmed what I said, like, dang, if racist jokes are that important in the system of white supremacy and conveying values, what it means to be white, what it means to be black. A lot of them, they're about violence against black people. If that's the case, what it suggests to me is White people enjoy practice racism, white supremacy. This is funny, mm-hmm. which would mm-hmm. seem to match up why mm-hmm. this is robbing me of my fun. We had way more fun in the workplace because they didn't even say we got all That's these women here. That's not what he said. They didn't say we got to have, you know, yeah. more fertility plan and longer maternity leave. And now we got more work. They didn't say that. He said racist jokes. If racist jokes right. are that important. We're not ignorant, and in fact, we enjoy practicing. And I, Kobe Bryant, they swapped photographs of his dead carcass, and the same LA, or it's not the same because Mark Furman was LAPD, 
and this is the L.A. County Sheriff's Office, had to pay $30 million for swapping photos of his dead carcass. And we've had tons of white people come here and say, dang, that's the same thing as lynching photographs because they were swapping the pictures at a bar. That's how all this came out. Look at that. Crispy Kobe. Look at that. Look at that. that. L.A. Sheriff's Mark Furman, GED. But that's, am I making logical yeah. sense, Dr. Pierce, the racist jokes? Yeah, no, I see. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I see what you're saying. I mean, absolutely. Those racist and sexist jokes contain an element of aggression for sure. But I also think there's this, there's always those kinds of jokes are always like if they play on racist or sexist stereotypes, like somebody gets to be dumb and the white person gets to be smart. That's the sort of formula for those kinds of jokes. And I think it's this way, I think, that it goes back to the journalists who, you know, are kind of soothing themselves psychologically that that, that must serve that kind of function. I would love to read this book about jokes because it sounds, it sounds great. Um, I did want to add the, the women... I, I didn't say it in this chapter, but the women did find that, you know, men would complain because now that we have all these women, we do have to talk about things like maternity leave and time off and flexible work plans. And, you know, they didn't used to have to talk about stuff like that. So it disrupts it disrupts the status quo, which is, as you said, white supremacy. It just disrupts the ways that they want to do business. And I think you're right. It's like it disrupts the ways that they want to have fun at work. And they're now they're worried that they can't do that anymore. Having fun while practicing racism. Uh, let's yeah, see. Yeah, exactly. And sexism. And sexism, too. Yeah. Well, he didn't. We didn't get the sexist jokes, even though I'm sure. I mean, I, I didn't hear. Oh, no, he didn't mention them. Oh, okay. he didn't mention them. But okay. Yeah. And in fact, Joe Fegan didn't either. He said it was racist jokes, and the vast majority of them—they're not even just equally distributed amongst non-white people. He said it's about seventy-five percent are black people exclusively, and most of them. They are celebrating violence. In fact, I'll share one. We'll ask to reciprocate, but one of them, because we talked about it, but he had his students write him down in his journal, uh, in his book. One of them, because it was during the time of Obama, was what do President Obama and an apple have in common? They both look good hanging from a tree. That is celebrating violence. And that's the bulk of them. That's not ignorance about uh, racism. That's and that matched with historic number of death threats against black president unprecedented for the entire duration yeah. of his office. President Trump didn't even face that much of a life threatening experience during his tenure in office. But President Obama did. That's much closer to the reality of racism, white supremacy, mm-hmm. what it means to be white. And that's not ignorance uh let's see let me pause to get some mm-hmm. of our folks who had a question uh our caller at 2979 did you have a question for dr pierce she should be with us 2979 did you have a question 
Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Proceed. Greetings, guests, to the callers and Dr. Pierce. Uh, my first question is really part of for clarification. Uh, but earlier you said, or I'll, I'll rephrase it, is a firm, the goal of affirmative action to prevent discrimination? That's right. That's okay. right. The idea so is a f- to prevent discrimination before it happens. Yeah. Okay. So is affirmative action supposed to prevent people classified as white from practicing racism, white supremacy? Yes. That was its original intent, yes. Okay. Uh, in In your opinion, has affirmative action been successful in doing so? That's a really good question. I think what's happened with affirmative action is there has been such strong resistance to it when it's been about um, racialized groups. So if you're trying to, you know, make sure discrimination isn't happening against Blacks or Latinos in a workplace, in this workplace I studied, I feel like it was, they just didn't enforce it. They didn't try to do it. They didn't try to, it's like they would bring people in the door and then they wouldn't, they wouldn't mentor them. They wouldn't include them in things. There are all these ways that they made people feel excluded. So it didn't work. But importantly, affirmative action, as it was originally created, was first for race. And then in 1967, they added gender. So it was also for women. And this is one of the things that surprises a lot of people is that the greatest beneficiaries of affirmative action have been white women like me, professional, middle-class women, white women. It's because that's where, when you look at numbers and percentages, you see big changes, like in management, for example, compared to the 1960s, management has exploded with white women. Um, In universities, you see way more white women in humanities and social sciences. There's still fields like science and medicine where there aren't as many women overall. Um, But I think that's the sort of irony about affirmative action that, in my opinion, that it's done very little bit about race because of racism. There's been tremendous resistance. But somehow it's like been okay to let white women into these various jobs. And now this doesn't mean that there's no sexism or that things are great for women, but there is the Me Too movement and all of that. But I but my point is that if you really think about it, you know, as a policy like who has it helped in the aggregate and who has it resisted the most, employers have absolutely resisted affirmative action when it's for race. Thank you. So affirmative action has not been successful. Is that what you're saying? For for um, people of color. 
That's what I'm saying. It has not been successful for people of color. Okay. And then um, I have, I just have one short question. And then uh, do you believe people classified as white will ever stop practicing racism, white supremacy? Wait, say that again. If people are classified as what? People classified as white. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that people classified as white are going to stop practicing racism, white supremacy? Oh, stop, stop, stop. Okay, good question, good question. What I think is there is a small number of white people who are going to do that. And I feel like it's that small number's job to persuade other white people to stop doing it. So I think I, I think there are some, but I don't think the numbers are huge. Um, I think it's a small number. Anti-racist whites are a small number. Maybe, I don't know, 10% of the population, 15% of the population. Okay. And my last question, uh, you kind of already mentioned this, but... Does affirmative action have any value for people classified as white? I mainly ask because is there for white people to continue utilizing affirmative action or, you know, right. remain for affirmative right. action? Well, the the funny part, or maybe the irony of all of this is that you're not seeing all these stories about affirmative action takes jobs away from white people. Affirmative action means, you know, uh, white people don't get the promotions they want. They don't get into the schools they want, all these kinds of things. They're just not true. They just aren't true. There isn't evidence to back any of that up. These are stories that have been constructed through the media, through stories that get told that way, but they're not true. And so I think I, I, it, it's like I, the argument that often gets made by advocates of affirmative action is that it's important to have diverse universities, diverse workplaces, it, all that kind of thing. And I do think there are some white people who believe that and support that. But I also think the media, and this is kind of why I wrote my book, was that the media had just constructed so many false narratives about affirmative action that people believed. If, if, and what I've often wondered is if people actually knew how little change affirmative action has created, would they even, you know, oppose the policy? Because basically what they're, what the sort of the big, what everybody gets upset about, none of it's true. It's just not accurate. So I don't know if that helps you understand it any better, but I do think 
there's just been so the, the media has played such a big role in perpetuating all these misconceptions and lies about affirmative action um, and people eat them up white people eat them up oh my goodness we got our delectable negro moment white people eat them up delectable negro that's <laughs> i have to get that in labor uh, that's in our uh Top 10 for a reason. I just want to get in. Uh, so important. I got my second mention of Dr. Welsing in. Maybe we'll get three. Number one, uh, Dr. Pierce said that she thought about 10, 50, she put a percentage on it, 10%, 15% of uh, white people, they, you know, anti-racist, whatever that means, their job to convince the other white people to do correct things. Dr. Welsing always emphasized that white people are the minority on the planet they are less than 10 percent of the global population that is an important one to keep in mind for sure um two uh where the question our caller asked not the last question but before that one when he asked uh so has affirmative action worked to stop white people from practicing racism and she responded that affirmative action has not worked for people of color. I just think that's important because one of the reasons we don't solve this problem, the focus stays on non-white people as opposed to focusing on white people because they're the ones that are in charge. They are the problem. Affirmative action has not been successful in stopping white people from practicing racism. That is thing. Uh, before we nab our other caller, you just to the point that you just raised about white people eating this up and the misunderstanding about all of this, if that's what it is, white people ate this up. You, I thought this was one of the most important points of the book. This is page 85 and then jumping to 87. Uh, you write that the news media, again, white people, constructed the debate as a racial conflict and women were not a central issue in the affirmative action debate. I'm skipping to page 87. Though some white women were able to file lawsuits and win judgments against discriminating employers, those who did not have the economic or political resources to do so had little resource recourse in ending either sexual harassment or discrimination. This suggests that women with significant financial or political resources fared f-a-r-e-d differently than from those who did not have access to them interestingly despite the fact that white women have been one of the beneficiaries the most benefits of affirmative affirmative action programs and that government reports and class action lawsuits during this time period underscore continuing discrimination against women in the labor market the new york times and the san francisco chronicle devoted very little attention to women in the affirmative action debate during the 1990s. Approximately 1% of articles in each year mentioned women or gender. Now that I found staggering for so many reasons because they're explicitly written in the policy and then even more so because white women have been the greatest beneficiaries of the policy but they're totally mm -hmm. excluded. And in fact, even I'm just reading this from that, the very first sentence that I read, 
the news media constructed debate as a racial conflict and women were not a central issue in the affirmative action debate. I'm just reading it the way it's, it's written. It doesn't say white women. And as I read this book, frequently when these grouses about affirmative action kick in, it seems there's a gendered component that they're grousing about unqualified black males. And I'm not saying that, mm-hmm. you know, the black females and non-white females in general don't experience racism. That's documented. Yolanda, all of that. But it's I mean, it didn't say white women. It said women were not a central issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that seems to follow what I read, that a lot of this is grousing specifically about unqualified dark males, perhaps competing with that's white right. dudes to get these jobs. Am I misreading? No, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Black male privilege, indeed, even it staggers me even when I hear affirmative action. I've said for years, I don't even know why people mention affirmative action with black people. It should be Hillary Clinton. You, as you stated before, go grab them and say, hey, what do you think about affirmative action? Should we have it? Should we not have it? Hasn't it been great and all the rest of it? As opposed to this is just we can lie and bring up affirmative action and talk about black people as though tons of black people have taken over college and particularly tons of black males. Like, are you serious? Are you serious? (laughs) Like, come. it, It staggered me, even the fact that most of the time non-white people that I talk to are not informed about affirmative action like who's benefited most like in fact I even hear lots of non-white people who will say things like oh man this is horrible I hope they get rid of it because I'm stigmatized as a black person who's unqualified and you know you just got this job because I've heard tons of non-white people say that as opposed to wait a minute uh beyond varsity blues and all the cheating beyond all of that uh white women Mm -hmm. like did you go ask dr pierce like hey are you really qualified did you cheat to get this did you are you some unqualified old whatever white woman doctor did you all do that with like what i don't what tell me dr pierce in your experience are non-white people are they generally informed about affirmative action oh that's a good question and I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. Um, but there was something else you said. The non-white people you interviewed. Forgive me, Fanny. You did interview black people for oh, this sorry, study. The were they, the people were, I interviewed. Were, did did oh, they seem like they no, were accurately actually, informed? No, no. Well, well they were, but see, they were lawyers. Mm-hmm. They were lawyers. They, they, they understood affirmative action very well. Absolutely. Yeah, they did. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, it was something about the women. Um, uh, it'll come back to me. Uh, it'll come back to me. But it's absolutely true. It's it's been this great beneficiary. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Um, just to give you a sense of just how it worked in the legal profession and sort of the difference in, say, starting in 1980, 1980, 19% of all lawyers were women. Today, in, well, I should say there's 2020, 2020, 2020 statistics, it's 37%. Now, if we look at 
people of color, blacks, Latinos, Asian Americans, Native Americans. 1980, 11% of the legal profession. 2020, 13.5. So just look, just think about that. Like you see just in this one profession, the great increase in the number of women and the tiny change that happens when you look at people of color. And when you look specifically, blacks are 5% of the legal profession. Latinos are 5%. Asian Americans are like two and a half or three, something like that. And Native Americans are less than 1%. So, I mean, it's the numbers are tiny. So, again, it goes to your point about, you know, this, this understanding that somehow people of color are taking over and doing great in all these jobs. It's just not true. It's just not accurate to say that. That's one of those when I process, particularly the numbers that you gave, and 37% women, and particularly if it's that tiny chunk are non-white attorneys at this point, 13% approximately, that means the vast majority of that 37% are like you, white women that's right uh who have hopped they into are. the attorneys like man that's how you have the power couple that we mentioned before white man white woman power couple doing it mm-hmm. to it uh and mm-hmm. this the most one of the most important lines in the book where you explain this and again this is why i say lies you said several weeks later the new york times letter to the editor editor responding to one of these other affirmative action articles titled what feminism has done to the workplace Welcome to the battle, loyal Harrison writes affirmative action, which has been deliberately misrepresented as an economic sop for less qualified black men. Though virtually ignored in the debate, white women have benefited far more than black men and non-white people, period, males and females. White women have finally raised their voices. I hope they haven't waited too late to join the battle indeed they did i just i thought that was so that's why i said because it it becomes so explicit this is gendered this is not non-white people at all this is van they didn't even say non-white males this is very specific Mm -hmm. to black males are a perceived Mm -hmm. unqualified threat the randall kingsley's of the world they are gonna come take our jobs I had never thought of affirmative action in that manner. That is, do you think this is this is accurate, Doctor uh, Pierce? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, what always surprised me was that more people don't say this because it goes back to the caller's question about does affirmative action work? And like I said, no, it hasn't worked for people of color. There's been tremendous resistance, but it has worked in certain fields for white women. There's no question. It's made a difference. Context of white supremacy, and they have not reached back a hand to help their fellow black sisters. We got you, girl. We will wedge the door open. Uh, Speaking of black sisters, uh, Yolanda, one of the black female uh, attorneys in all, and that's exactly it right there. 
with Yolanda. She is a victim of racism, but it's not she's an unqualified black person, black female. It's, ooh, she's scary. Intimidating, mm-hmm. I say. She might be too quiet. We don't want too many Yolandas. Can we just have one of her? We don't need, we, we're good, right? We got one. Am I, am I accurate? Did I misread? That's exactly what they said. No, that's exactly what she said. You know, they already have one of me. And they, she also said in her interview that she thinks she's like scary smart to all these white men. They're kind of scared of her. She's super smart and she's super good at her job. And they kind of don't know what to do with that. Um, but, but the other thing that, uh, happened was she had been, she came into this job with already a lot of experience from another job. And when they hired the two black men, Randall and Tyrone, um, they were brand new, fresh out of law school. And then what would happen is she would get constantly compared to them to make them look bad. And as she said, how could they look good? You know, I've been on the job for this long time. I have all this experience. They're just starting out. It's an unfair comparison. But that was, you know, this sort of divide and conquer strategy was kind of going on in this workplace, or that's how she felt anyway. But it did, you know, so she got to be this kind of star, but it was also clear that there was some ambivalence about it. She got teased all the time. There was this constant banter because she was just so good at everything she did rather than say, isn't it great you did this, pat on the back, you know, she'd get teased about she just won this in court or she just got this big win or she just got that. So it was a very different kind of reaction to her success. I love the details that you include, Dr. Pierce, where the, like you said, the response to her success is intimidating and that's verbalized where they will do mm-hmm. things like where she goes to court and she's, you know, working her cases or what have you. They would call her the queen of sanctions. It's like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. If she's catching her opposition doing incorrect things and that helps her win a case. Why is it? Wow. That's right. She is so technically proficient and comp like, wow, more of us. No, 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 no. The queen and then they they put her yeah. as president to uh, to go get a new coffee maker. I said, "How Aunt Jemima is that?" That like the backhanded compliment. I know. Can you believe that? I know. When she told me that story, I just like I, this is so. Yes, it's very uh, I want to. This is an exercise. We have another caller, but this is just an exercise. I want to do. Even I said we had two, so I already read the deliberate fair. You said fair. It's been in the news clips, what have you, that we played some of the audio segments that we played. Uh, Neely Fuller Jr. two times. Mm -hmm. He writes this about the word fair. I want to read this just to hear your thoughts. And then I want to go back to your work. One of the passages where you say fair, but fair is in here like dozens of times. It's it's fascinating every time through. Mm -hmm. But this is what Mr. Fuller writes about the word fair. He says fair. Do not use this word. Uh, in any way that is directly or indirectly associated with the word justice or is directly or indirectly mm-hmm. associated with being correct or right or righteous. Study mm-hmm. the many ways that mm-hmm. others choose to use the word fair. It continues. Reason. Mm-hmm. During the existence of white supremacy racism, 
fair means white since fair is usually mm. associated with mm. words white or whiteness as in racing for or innocence mm. and then whiteness it does not mean and should not be mm-hmm. used to mean just and or justice during the existence of white supremacy racism racist man and racist woman often use the words fair white justice and or just to mean one and the same thing they use the word fair in a manner that is likely to cause many persons to believe that in order for a person to practice justice the person must or should be fair and or white it is incorrect to use the Mm. word fair in any manner that is likely to directly or indirectly help to promote the idea that justice or correctness is or should be associated with a person being white in appearance or according to a classification by racist man and racist woman. I'll stop there. What do mm-hmm. you think about that assessment of the word fair? Wow. That's really interesting. I like it. It also occurs to me that throughout the uh, the media part of my book where I talk about all the newspaper articles that were written, that's the anti-affirmative action stuff over and over was about fairness, but it was about, is this fair to white men? Not about fairness to people of color. Um, it also makes me think, and I didn't write this at the time, but it also makes me think one of the things that comes up in some of the women's discussions about affirmative action is they'll actually say, well, I support affirmative action. I think it's an important policy. I wouldn't be here without affirmative action, blah, blah, blah. But then they'll tell some story, one of those crazy racist stories that they read in the newspaper about you know, why affirmative action is unfair to men, to white men. Um, And then they'll wonder about fairness. And um, one of the sociologists that I talk about, Troy Duster, who wrote a really terrific book called Backdoor to Eugenics, he talks about the difference between um, how often the debate gets framed as individual fairness when in fact the policy itself, affirmative action, is about changing society. It's about restructuring society. It's about changing the structure of inequality. And I always thought that was really important because the the fairness always gets about, it's, it always ends up in the stories that I heard about me and what's fair to me that there's no consideration of how does this affect other people? Because it's not just about me. It's about, you know, we live in a world with other people. How is this going to affect other people? I, I go back to the beginning of the program. I said for context, and even I want to substitute in one of the sentences, but just responding a lot of times that this is not, quote, unquote, fair to me is 
Mr. Wood saying this is not fair to me where uh, we're starting from yeah. a lie to begin with in not fair to me and an acknowledged and even the other one where it's hey I can't tell racist jokes anymore I gotta walk on eggshells that is not fair to that's what Mark Furman said hey right. I'm an American I got a right to say what I want to I, I don't think we should have all these women and minorities on the police department I got a right it's not fair to hush me up now the the thought ex or not or just exercise I'll put it that way so if I substitute white in this passage that you write this is with uh, make sure I get the name correct GJ one of the folks that you did Gail there we go your talk interview with Gail where fair comes up regularly I'm going to switch out fair for white and you let me know if this makes sense this is in the stand by your man tell chapter tell me where you are page 105 what, stand please? by your mom uh, stand by your man oh, page okay. 105 okay, it's midway yeah, yeah. through so talking to Gail yeah. I'm just switching it out in the end it comes down to different ways of thinking about what's white do we want to do something that would bring about more whiteness to society in general or do we want to focus on one individual at a time the kind of work I do in public interest organization is about bringing whiteness to society in general she provides several examples from her work to illustrate this point at the same time I can see it from the opposition's viewpoint if I were the one who didn't get into college and someone else did did get in through affirmative action I would probably feel like it wasn't white to me what do you think in terms of of the meaning and how particular how do things work in the system is that is that accurate is it still accurate to what she oh, was saying yeah because i mean if you think about you know the status quo is whiteness but i think in in gail's case i mean she talks about individual fairness but i also think she is interested in how you can change the system itself. But on this particular issue, she's ambivalent. She's kind of going back and forth. And I, and I think to me, what I found frustrating in these interviews um, was that there tended to be this um, tendency to take seriously what was in the newspapers as if that were true as opposed to that's just some story that, you know, the the media is telling. That doesn't mean, you know, affirmative action has really been unfair to white men. So there was this sort of assumption that the stories they read in the newspaper were true. Um, but I, yeah, but I, I see what you're saying. I mean, I do think, there is something, certainly in Gail's story, what's fair, it's what's fair to me. Um, I guess what I want to know, and I'm curious uh, what you think, is if you're going to think about change, then what would the word be? Would you say overturning white supremacy? Would you say ending racism? instead of saying fairness uh, I would 
just substitute. We do this on workplace racism all the time because it's stunning the number of times that fair is used in a workplace context. Uh, and I try to oh, pass yeah. it out every time. I always think, and it comes up at really critical moments uh, where even fairness, fair, like, oh gosh, uh, I would substitute like regale. In the end, it comes down to different ways of thinking about what's just. Do we want to do something that would bring about more justice to society in general, or do we want to focus on one individual at a time? The kind of work I do in public interest organization is about bringing justice to society in general. Mm -hmm. at At the same time, I can see it from the opposition's viewpoint. If I were the one who didn't get into college and someone else did get in through affirmative action, I would probably feel like it wasn't just to me. Now, even that the whole argument mm-hmm. in terms of who is to blame if this white fella doesn't get in, it's you. It's Hillary Clinton. So it would be, mm-hmm. so do That's I feel right. bad because they took their spot? Like, that would be the correct framing, not, ooh, we, and even what the automatic sympathy, automatically, this white person, oh, I'm so sorry, but not, wait a minute, uh, Mr. Wood, did you, are you really qualified? Like, wait a minute, let's, let's, and did you able to go to another and white people brag about not going to college and they go conquer the world isn't that what steve jobs and elizabeth holmes right they brag about this i dropped out and didn't do all this and look at me i made billions and millions and all the rest of us i mean and you can always cheat we started with opposition uh varsity blue i do i do want to get to the story just because i was stunned i was not going to read it she Dr. Pierce, this is scholarly work, right? She goes through and does all this serious quantitative research and everything else. She ends with a short story, explains why sometimes she already said some of these white people are not honest. They obfuscate. So we'll use a short story to give an example. And she gives this business kind of meeting at a restaurant, black female to white male attorneys. And I read this here story and I say, dang, this is a black female attorney uh, why doesn't she have her own car Dr. Pierce have you ever lived in San Francisco yes <laughs> I have actually yes you don't, you, really okay I, it's not a great place to have a car but yeah Hmm. I, but she's an attorney like the white male attorneys they have a car like she's an attorney she can afford at least like a a Honda, mm-hmm. Volkswagen, like it doesn't yeah. have to be a sports car. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah. That it's interesting you said that, but yeah. I mean, when I was in San Francisco, lots of people didn't have cars because it was too impossible to park them, and also very expensive to do so. And she's also, you know, supposed to be in the in public sector, and these guys are in the private sector. So the guy with the fancy red sports car, you know, was at the private firm and can afford all that. So anyway, right. Totally got it. That's I didn't say a Porsche though. I just felt like, dang, she couldn't. I did live in the Bay Area, and I knew even white people that were not attorneys and non-white people that were not attorneys, and they had a car. Like, just yeah. Thought I okay, so we got it. Okay. Uh, then I said, uh, hmm, I hmm, what is the significant like the the recurring thing? Of genitalia in this short story, what is the the significance of that? 
Uh, it's I, it's just how this one guy talks. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's how he talks. And um, I didn't know why he talked like that. I got a kind of, you know, ripping off of... Oh, um, you got muffled, Dr. Pierce? You got muffled. I wasn't able... Pardon? We weren't, we weren't really oh, able to sorry, hear you. Sorry. So we couldn't hear you. So if you could maybe oh. uh, backtrack, we couldn't hear you for a second oh, there. Oh, okay. Uh, basically, it was the kind of talk that I would hear lawyers using at the firms where I did interviews. So it was kind of mimicking that kind of talk to be realistic as to how they talk about things. Hmm. Okay. For for listeners, right, yes, for listeners' sake. So genital talk, genital focus that I'm that she writes about. So we got a discussion of a rape case and whether or not the person used a condom. Give us the details of how that played out. Uh, we got fascinating exchange where a white father talks about his daughter and how this fella in one of her California college classes wrote about a fella having sexual intercourse with a piano. Uh, we got a fascinating linguistic breakdown of ball breaking and then ball busting. Uh, and then even yeah. Dr. Welsing again, I don't know if this is conscious or subconscious, but we got a mention of the Chicago bull. She would say even that one, they do castrate the bull running of the bulls, which is kind of a worldwide <laughs> phenomenon. So even get the subconscious one there. Uh, but you said this is based on how these people talk in your, in this world. All yeah. these, wow. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Mm. Mm, that's okay. I'll have to ball. You hear ball breaking, ball busting. You hear that sort of descriptor pretty often in this environment. Yeah. Well, then anyway, I can't speak to currently contemporarily, but when I did my research, yeah, that was a typical way to describe women. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, you you write about this short story. I already said this is used to kind of get at some of what could be happening here for listeners. They these white guys kind of make some racist comments. Uh, the black female smart defends herself with words. Gets interrupted. Her daughter's been in a vehicle accident. She has to go, not life threatening but serious. So she has to leave, of course. Uh, and they continue with the racist antics. She leaves, of course. Black person can't get a cab. Uh, white man with a vehicle uh, comes to get her to uh, mm -hmm. the hospital for her daughter and uh, en route they can have a chit chat about what happened and the white guy can you know oh my bad and the black female can or uh, she, yes, she apologizes and all that they can kind of reconcile as they go to the hospital and you write that this was a part of another reason as to why you included this short story uh, is that this counters the common Hollywood narrative to provide nuance uh, so that you can have someone who is beyond is this person a racist or not a racist? Uh, is that an accurate kind of summary of, of what you said about the short story? Some of it at least? Well, some of it. I mean, a, a couple things. One, I, I was trying to get behind the silence of you know, like, oh, it's like I'm walking on eggshells. Like, they don't have a whole lot else to say. Like, what are you really thinking? You know, so that was part of it. And one character, one of the characters served as you find out what he's really thinking. 
um, even though he doesn't say it directly uh, to Robin, the black woman. Um, the other character is this kind of, he tells you, he's unfiltered. He tells you everything that comes out of his brain, he says. And he says all kinds of racist and weird things, um, including the story about his daughter and the piano and all of that. Um, but I, I was trying to sort of show, like, one, to my way of thinking, the one character hides his racism behind this mask. The other white character is, in some ways, he, he definitely says racist things at dinner. But then you kind of don't expect him to get it together and show up at the end and drive her to the hospital. Um, so, I, so I sort of use it to talk about how he's ambivalent, that there's a kind of ambivalent racism. He wants to be a good guy, but his racism keeps getting in the way, is one way to say it. Anyway. Fascinating. Fascinating. Uh, the, uh, hmm, the, uh, when I read the story, and particularly when I got to the part about it counters the typical kind of Hollywood notion, is this person racist or not racist and all of that, and after I thought about it, I was like, oh, oh, oh. Oh, okay, make sure we're there. You can hear me, okay, Doctor Pierce. Yeah. Oh, okay, make sure we didn't get there. Was a, there was a now I hear you. Okay, great, great. Um, I was saying that as I read, and particularly I was thinking about that, is this counter to that typical Hollywood notion? Uh, and after I got to the end, and I was like, man, this is exactly like the Hollywood films, uh, many of which that you mentioned in the book, where you get the white redemption uh, even before the white redemption where the black female character she sympathizes with this white man who's talking about his hard scrappy polish upbringing like oh man i can sympathize with him for a minute blah 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 and then he gets into all of his crude racist commentary and what have you and the story doesn't end with dang this is a sad commentary on racism he gets to be redeemed just like in uh what's john grisham's uh, time to kill he gets to be redeemed we're dang mm -hmm. my bad in fact let me give you a ride to the hospital and we hash it all out in fact she apologizes uh for the way that she stormed off and told them off before she leaves to go tend to her daughter she apologizes oh it's the michael jordan coming like why did you start asking me about michael jordan in chicago uh and he said oh man it's just you know he's michael jordan blah, blah, blah. and so she apologizes to him after all of that and he gets to redeem himself like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm, you know, I'm working, I'm ambivalent, blah, blah, blah. That's like all of the Hollywood films. The white person gets to even crash the two. That's beyond your time frame. But this is the same genre. Uh, the white police officer, he terrorizes Terrence Howard, Thandie Newton, pulls them over, sexually assaults the wife. But he gets to read and he grouses about affirmative action. I almost included that one, too. But that's beyond your time frame. He goes in and complains. They hired you. You know, count black female. You're not even qualified. It's probably a white person who should have had this job. And security comes and throws him out. He's so disgruntled. But 
He gets to redeem himself. Fandy Newton crashes her vehicle and he risks her life to save her. That's, in fact, I even said this <laughs> is driving Miss Daisy. That is exactly the uh, way driving Miss uh, Daisy ends. Dan Aykroyd is driving Morgan Freeman to the hospital, which is where they're going in your story. And we're going to reconcile it. Yeah, maybe we were racist to you, Morgan, but it's, you know, we're going to get it together and do right by you. Just give us a chance. And I'm going to drive you for a change to the hospital and the end. It's, it's exactly. And when I said, I said, dang, that again shows me the impossibility of why even beyond racism, white supremacy for people classified as white. This is not counter at all. It is painfully total clone driving Miss Daisy. You saw drive. You mentioned it in the, isn't that driving Miss Daisy? Dan Aykroyd drives mm-hmm. Morgan Freeman at the end. Isn't that what happens? They reconcile. Right. No, no, I do. I do. Yeah. It's interesting. You say that because, um, cause, okay. So I, I taught this short story um, in a lot of different classes and how a lot of students respond is, um, well, first of all, they want to know why the one guy McElroy is such a jerk and why he, you know, has this mask. Why does he pretend to be nice to her when he really thinks all these racist things? But the other thing is, they don't like the end of the story because it's open-ended. Like, yes, she's gotten into the car. They're having a conversation, but you don't know what happens after they drive away. Like, are they going to be friends? Is she just going to say, take the ride and that's it? You know, she'll never talk to this guy again. He'll never talk to her. You don't know. And, um, that really bothered a lot of students because they thought they didn't see it tied up as, as neatly as you did. They thought, like, well, what's going to happen? Like, are they friends or not? You know, that kind of thing. They saw it as more open-ended. So I'm interested that you think it's not open or that it's, you know, like driving Miss Daisy kind of reversed, um, that he's driving her. But anyway... Um, yeah, yeah. It's not driving Miss Daisy reversed. It's driving Miss Daisy reverses itself at the conclusion. It's exactly the conclusion of driving Miss Daisy. Hulk, the black male, is being driven by Dan Aykroyd's character, the white male, as they reconcile. It's exactly uh, the same at the conclusion. Oh, God. Uh, And in fact, that... That information about the typical response from your students who read this book, just for me further, the fact that people were looking for the driving Miss Daisy. Oh, they're homies. Like this was a business meeting. This was they were not friends. Who said this was for this was am I going to work at this friend at this firm? Not are we going to be friends? Like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> like, that is the perverseness of all of this. Like, we were not talking about being friends. We were talking about equality and justice in hiring. Not, hey, we're friends right. now because right. white people can marry, excuse me, racists can marry and have sexual intercourse with non-white people and still practice racism. So surely they could be so-called friends, whatever that means, with a non-white person. 
and still be why would she even want to be friends with any of these white men given their conduct well, right? i wouldn't yeah i i agree i i i yeah i don't i don't think excuse me either of the characters are very sympathetic for sure are either of the white characters are very I'm just, that's just how. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Because you have your black female character. She explicitly sympathizes with the white man at the beginning of the story. That's why I said it has all the elements of these other films that you claim you're countering. She says it explicitly. I already mentioned it. She sympathizes with Bill, I believe it was, because of his Polish upbringing, and oh, he's scrappy like me, like, mm-hmm. it's right there, like, that's a part of the system, we have to, we, non-white people have to sympathize with everybody, sympathize with white people, even the non-white people, yes, yes, we, oh, Bill is scrappy, and yeah, and he gets forgiven at the end, of, we can't have this with, end without okay. that, what? like, what it says in the short story, let me let me just fix it. What she says in the short story is, okay, she's about McElroy. He's the type of lawyer who slips in an objection before the other side has a chance to take a breath. At the same time, she has a sliver of sympathy for Bill. She worked her way through college, too, though she would never mention this fact to people she's meeting for the first time. So she's has a sliver, but at the same time, she's critical of him because why is he telling all his personal business, you know, when he just met her? All that to the side. Sliver, um, a, 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 a crumble of sympathy. Uh, she has a teaspoon of sympathy. Sympathy for a white man who is talking about having sex with a piano and all kinds of crudeness and racism. He hasn't talked racism. about that at this point. Right, In right, this point right. In story, he hasn't right. brought that up yet. It's coming, and even, even, after, the very even after all of that happens, she apologizes to him as they reconcile in the video. That, too, it's the same. Like, are you serious? After all of this, my fault, my white brother, for jumping to conclusions about you bringing up Chicago and Michael Jordan. And incidentally, I'm going to double down on her for that just because that's fiction. You can't even just mention a basketball player because Michael Jordan comes up in the book twice. Like he's one of the most popular black people in the book. You have to be the best basketball player to ever pick up a basketball and a billionaire to be like hey i like my like really a billionaire like wow that is so impressive and egalitarian of you that you like michael jordan like billions of people on the planet like that is amazing are there any other black people that you like al sharpton johnny cochran oj simpson Mm-hmm. Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> they don't even mention <laughs> Oprah Winfrey. It's Michael Jordan. You got to be the greatest. And it's sports, not something intellectual. Like I said, he didn't mention Oprah. He didn't mention uh, the former black mayor of Chicago. Didn't even mention Obama. Right, too but early. This is, but this is, right, right. But this is the character of Bill, who is like from Chicago. This is like what he's going to talk about. You, I said one. 
Michael Jordan pops up more than once in the book, not just in the fiction part. So uh, uh-huh. and you said this is based on truth. Mm-hmm. So apparently this must be kind of in the law. And that's what I, hang on one second, hang on one second, hang on one second, hang on one second, hang on one second. I was making my point on the Michael Jordan. Apparently this must be widespread. And in my experience, it is because this happens frequently where white people do only think of and relate to black people as entertainers and athletes that's the only like kind of like oh how about those lakers mm. kobe bryant or depending on the era how about that tiger woods mm. how about that like i said depending on the era that'll be the only that's the only i can't conceptualize of black people as oh politicians or someone that i don't want to kill like that obama that was the point i wanted to make go ahead oh well, the other place that Michael Jordan gets mentioned is in one of the interviews where one of the people I interviewed was explaining how, why it is like white people love Michael Jordan, but they do racist stuff. And so that was her example. And I'm submitting loving Michael Jordan from a white person when they didn't even allow black people like Bill Russell and Michael Jordan to play in the NBA submitting. I love Michael Jordan that in and of it with their whole books written about that uh, Darwin's athletes, Dr. John Hover, when we talked about this, even that if Michael Jordan hopped off the court and didn't have on that uniform, he would be a raping or rental or rental. <laughs> Or rental James. Uh, our caller who dumped in Bay Area Mom. Hey, Bay Area 415. Woo! Did you have a question for Dr. Pierce? She should be with us. Um, yes, thank you for taking my call. Greetings to you, Amber. Yes. Yeah. Um, hi. I was I was listening to you earlier and you were mentioning um uh, I guess I so what I think it was maybe Pacific Bell or um, it had to be because it was an AT&T uh, back in the day but he could have said and um, a lot of um, people were employed there I remember looking well, why I remember looking in the yearbook um, uh, Bay Area um, late 60s Oakland Oakland um, not um, Fremont High School, there were, uh, there's a lot of uh, white students there. There's a nice amount of black students. Balboa High School as well, um, they had a, a smidgen of uh, black students. And when you, in those days, they would tell you what they, what they were going to do when they leave high school. And a lot of them were going to uh, Pacific Bell. Um, and there, I think it was Pacific Bell, but it was more word as similar as like maybe in the Telegraph Company was just very <laughs> wordy Pacific Bell. But everyone was going straight out of high school into Pacific Bell. The the ones that weren't <laughs> black, that the black ones were mm-hmm. more going. They they weren't going for anything of substance. And is that because do you think um, of how the white people kept it white? before the affirmative action came into play and maybe then they had to uh, make it like that because no black people were getting into those. They weren't going to college, but they, everyone that mm-hmm. probably mm-hmm. didn't want to go to college, they could just go to uh, those kind of places. Do you think it was because of that? And thank you. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, what from what I know about that that lawsuit, they were absolutely keeping blacks out of jobs, and there were lots of jobs that you could get straight out of college, or excuse me, straight out of high school. You could be a telephone operator if you were a woman. You could be a lineman and you know work on the telephone lines and fix things and stuff if you were a man. And but those jobs were very racially and sex segregated so that it was mostly white men on the line and it was mostly white women um, who worked as telephone operators in the 60s. And that does change. I mean, part of what happens after this big lawsuit uh, against AT&T and the consent decree is that they hire more African-Americans both um, as operators and also on the line jobs. But that, but you're right, the 60s, that makes sense, that that would be the time that the phone company would, that they were doing precisely the things they got in trouble for doing, for discriminating on the basis of race and sex. Thank you. Um, that's all, that's all I want to know, and I'll, I'll remove. Grand, our caller two two six two, two two six two. Did you have a question for Dr. Pierce? You should be with us two two six two. Yes, sir. Thanks for taking my call. And hello, uh, Dr. Pierce. Thank you for taking some time to speak to us. Um, I wanted to ask about your subjects, the white lawyers. Um, mm-hmm. If any, were there any kind of like for your research? Was there any kind of um, Punitive, damage, uh, punitive ramifications that the lawyers will receive if they spoke to you? I'm sorry, say that again. Was there any what? The, the phone's kind of going in and out. Did they have to do any what before they talked? Yes. Uh, as far as your project and the lawyers speaking to you, were they in fear of any type of retaliation from speaking to you and being uh, honest? Oh, 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 I see. Yes. Okay, so I I know that um, some of the um, uh, women, some of the women were nervous about talking to me, and some of the black lawyers were nervous about talking to me. Um, but I changed names. In fact, they got to pick the names they wanted me to use in the book, um, rather than use their actual names. The other thing, though, is, for example, the Randall Kingsley, who came up with the wonderful phrase, racing for innocence, um, he had left and was gone. Um, so when I interviewed him again, he wasn't at the firm. He was in solo practice. And um, so I, I don't think he really feared any retaliation. And Tyrone, the other black man I interviewed, uh, had also left, so they so that firm couldn't really do anything to them. I think the concerns were people who were still there were worried about if they seemed too critical of the office. Um, but since I give the office, I make up a different name for the office and things like that, it would be hard to do. But it is true there was some concern about that. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, but my question was mainly about the white 
uh, lawyers that you um, interviewed, were there any fear on their mm-hmm. um, part to mm-hmm. speak to you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the very first guy that Gus talked about, uh, his name was J- Jason is the name he came up with. And he was very honest about the problems the firm had. And I know he was a little worried about if this would come back to haunt him for saying, you know, what he presumed to be critical things. Some of the white women were worried, I think, uh, that they wouldn't be presented very well. There were two white women who were extremely anti-affirmative action. And um, I don't know that their concern was so much about if the firm would retaliate I think because they said they said pretty mean things about the other women. They they they, they called the other women um, whiners about discrimination, and they just you know should get a job and work hard. And what was their problem? Stop whining all the time. I think they were concerned that that would come back to bite them because it would be obvious who they were that they had. But since the firm is. Um, Everything is sort of cloaked in other names like that. I don't think it would be that obvious who said what. Was that? Did you have another question, sir? Our caller was that it? Our caller two two six two. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Yes, sir. I put myself on mute. Yes. Thank you for your response. Um, my next question is about the subject, the white uh, lawyers you spoke to. Um, mm-hmm. When you asked them about correcting their behavior to be, I guess, quote unquote, more inclusive to the black lawyers, and they mm-hmm. didn't do anything, and, and their response was they didn't do anything to, I guess, correct their behavior, mm-hmm. would you classify that as an act of racism? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're basically acting in ways that just reproduces the status quo. They're reproducing this as a, you know, an all-white firm. They're not doing anything to be inclusive. So, yeah, I would say that's racism. Thank you. Um, My next question, um, your study talks about affirmative action and uh, how it mainly uh, helps whites. Am I correct? It helps white women. White yeah. women. Okay. Was there any, I guess, differences, or did you? Did, does your book uh, bring up any differences, differences between um, quote unquote LGBT whites and hetero whites, or or not? Yeah. No. Unfortunately, there was only one person in my sample um, who identified as LGBTQ, and she actually made very clear she didn't want that part of her identity revealed in the book. I also think there there were some other lawyers, um, but you also have to understand this came, I, I, the first time I did this research was in the late 80s, and then I interviewed people again in the 90s. And in the 80s, um, San Francisco in particular was hit very hard by the AIDS pandemic. And so I think there was a lot of silence at that time about sexuality, especially with 
uh, an interviewer they don't know. Um, so I think it's possible there were more LGBTQ people in my sample, but they didn't they didn't talk about it. Okay. And as far as um, affirmative action concern, as far as the numbers of who it benefits and who it doesn't, uh, what are the numbers of it benefiting LGBT people? That's a good question, and I really don't know the answer to that um, because it because LGBTQ is absolutely a protected class, um, but I really don't know what the answer to that is. And I, I mean, it's also kind of scary right now because there's just so much going on in Florida and all these places that's absolutely anti. LGBTQ, and it's, I think we need more information about, you know, what what kind of discrimination is going on, but also what policies are going to be effective to overcome it. Okay. Um, what problem were you trying to solve from your work? The big question I was trying to answer was, why is it that white people um, participate in racism um, but deny that they do it? In other words, why don't white people see all the ways they participate on a daily basis in racism? And I don't mean things like telling racist jokes, although it could be something like that, but just you know, like the things that happen in the office where you don't invite, you know, all the white guys who, like, don't invite the one black guy to go with them for drinks or they don't show up for their mentor meetings or they invite them to lunch and don't show up and then they wonder why people think it's a big deal and it's because it happens over and over again. Um, so I, that was my question. Like, how do they how do they do this? What are sort of the maneuvers that they have to do, uh, what are the stories they tell themselves to do this? Thank you for your response. Um, uh, since you brought up the racist jokes, from all the people you interviewed, could you, uh, do you remember any of them? Could you tell us at least one? Oh, God, the only one I remember is I wrote about I, I have to say, I hate those kind of jokes because they're always about making somebody be stupid, which I just, it's just offensive. But the one I remember the most is one that they would tell about affirmative action. And it would, it would always be like in somebody's office and it, it would be like, you know, what, what do you think affirmative action is? Oh, it's a quota for lazy people. And I would always say, I don't think that's funny. And so then I would get like, oh, aren't you Miss Serious? Blah, 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 that kind of, you know, reaction. But there seemed to, I mean, it certainly they didn't say this in public places, but I heard that one a lot. Okay. Um, I believe you spoke earlier about um, during, uh, I guess, the beginning of affirmative action, certain uh, white people changed the race of their, I guess, children to get the benefits. Is that true? Wait, say that again. Why they changed what? No, that uh, white people, when I guess affirmative action was first initiated, changed the race of their children 
on paperwork to get benefits. Was that true or? Oh, that was that was from the um, clips um, that Gus had from uh, the um, uh, documentary about what happened okay. at University of Southern California. Yeah, that was that that was those were some of the practices that they were telling rich white people to do to get into college. That wasn't okay. in my book. Okay. Okay. Thank you for responding to my questions. Thank you guys for taking my call. I'll meet my line. Thanks for your questions. She's doing her uh oh no, her uh castigating Southern Cal O.J. Simpson's alma mater it was way beyond just Southern Cal this was super widespread in fact I suspect Cal Berkeley might have been implicated in all this as well but it was not just a Southern California cheating problem right Um, that's right that's right you've said it a few times I just always think it's important to make sure that non-white people don't miss other white people when they launch into these jokes and even their castigation of affirmative action if you're classified as or racists they assume that if you are white you are also racist is that true dr pierce wait say, say that again who, who assumes what racists who's a racist racists if they're talking to someone else who is also classified as white they assume if you are classified as white you are racist I'm still not getting this for some reason. It's not making sense to me. Can you can you say it one more time? For sure. I said racists. Someone who is a racist. Mm-hmm. Got it? Okay. They yeah, yeah. assume that if you are classified as white, you are a racist as well. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. There's a reason this is not computing. Okay. Um, I Yes, I think that's how white nationalists see the world. Yeah? That you, if you aren't, because if you aren't, then you're a race traitor. Just for distinction's sake, because I didn't say white nationalists. That's one of those. Uh, racists, they assume. Okay. Well, if you, okay. Is oh. that still accurate? Mm. Racist? They assume that if you are white, you are racist as well, or you're racist too. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, yeah, I think that's a common assumption. I, I know that uh, what would happen, for example, in my interviews is I think once we started talking about affirmative action, and it was pretty, and I think the assumption would be, because I'm white, I would be against affirmative action. But as the questions went on, and it was clear that I wasn't against affirmative action, I think that uh, kind of messed with their assumptions. So I guess you're, I get, okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, I just realized, did you know it's, it must be 11 o'clock the time? Oh, I'm in Washington State, so it's 8 p.m. for me. Uh, we will oh my not okay. delay. Okay. Yeah, three-hour time okay. difference. So, yeah, right. a little different for, for my It's still sunny out here. Oh, in yeah, Washington State. Okay. Yes, yes. 
uh, still sunny out here. It, okay. In fact, Washington State, where Mark Furman was born. Isn't that wacky? Um, it has been... Uh, it has been, I guess our last one will let you go for the evening. Who do you think is more informed about racism, white supremacy, what it is and how it works? Do you think people who are classified as white or the people who are classified as not white are more informed about what racism is, how it works? People who are not white. How so? How are do more they? informed about what? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Say that again. I was just going to say how so. You said people who are non-white are more informed. Oh, because you have to live it every day. You have to learn how to work around it. You have to learn how you're going to deal with it. You have to learn how you're going to navigate it, whether you want to or not. And so I think that becomes the sort of education and what it is. And that's why, you know, most white people can sort of say, I have no idea what that is, because they don't have to live it every day. And you know, and then they can pretend white fragility and all that kind of stuff so they don't have to understand or think about it. Mm. So, yes, I think non-white people are know much more about racism, white supremacy, et cetera. From that article where I said one of our words for the program deliberately, uh, Affirmative action, which has been deliberately misrepresented as an economic sop for less qualified black men, uh, that widespread deliberate misrepresentation. Do you think it was white people or non-white people who produced that? Well, given that journalists at the time were majority white, although there were some journalists of color, it probably was a white racial what what. Joe Fagan would call white racial frame, right? It's setting up things how white people will understand them and setting up a sort of problem that will make sense to white people. Setting up a lie, since this was a deliberate misrepresentation, setting up a racist lie that they know, using your metaphor, white people will eat up. We will lie, tell a story to blame black people for something that we know is not true. Even what you said before, to cover up for our own failures in the competitive field Mm -hmm. of journalism where they're not competing with Al Sharpton, Johnny Cochran. They're competing with other white people. So it would really just be you and your own laziness, ineptitude, not me, uh, O.J. Simpson, that is, we got to write and hundreds of stories, not one or two hundreds of stories where they don't even do their job and fact check. They just print lies. And it's black people's black when that is not even factually correct. And I guess the parting shot is these are not dumb white people to be an attorney or to be a journalist. You have to go. Well, they say you have to go to school, but I mean, Operation Varsity Blues. But they say you got lots of school (laughs) to do all of that. So, I mean, ostensibly, these are people who spent a lot of time in school. They are not dumb. They don't just give these jobs to anybody to be a lawyer to work at the New York Mm -hmm. Times. Like these are smart white people. Mm -hmm. And you went and Mm -hmm. deliberately lied, told racist lies 
that would be one where the white people were more informed than non-white people. Like you didn't mention a wave of non-white people who immediately already knew what that was about and launched an effective countermeasure. That would have to be at least one where white people were more informed. Yes, the white people who did all of this. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think you're right. I think I, I also think there is this part of... Um, It's a sort of complicity with the status quo, right? That we're not going to change the status quo. It's just, you know, it's easier to leave things the way they are. Mm-hmm. Status quo is in that same book that I read from Mr. Neely Fuller Jr. Uh, about Thayer. He has status quo mentioned as well because the status quo is white supremacy racism and in fact that is Atticus Finch's attitude and it doesn't come through until the sequel that hey I like things just how they are with Calpurnia in the kitchen I like my help let's keep Alabama make America great let's keep it the way it is man that's Atticus Finch too like through and through thank you for (laughs) indulging me doctor yeah you definitely made me think through uh, how to talk about uh, uh, the Killing Mockingbirds. So, Calpurnia. You. You, do you identify as a feminist? I do. Man, Calpurnia. That, that right there, the failure of white I feminist know. strikes again. The racism, white supremacy. I'm sorry? I said, how did I miss it? Yeah. <laughs> White supremacy, racism. That I submit that's not a blind spot because it's so widespread. Calpurnia, Schmalspurnia. Nah, we don't care about all that. Get out of here. Atticus Finch. Mm. Anywho, the book Racing for Innocence, Dr. Jennifer L. Pierce. I learned quite a bit. Thank you so much for indulging us with your, for you, Wednesday, late Wednesday evening. I learned a ton. Uh, Thank you so much. Hopefully folks will read the book. Uh, Take care and enjoy the rest of your 2023 summer, Dr. Pierce. Okay, you too. Take care. For sure. Evening, evening. Dr. Jennifer L. Pierce, University of Minnesota, George Floyd. I mentioned that they just got recreational cannabis in the state of Minnesota. Now there's 23 states in the U.S. and the District of Columbia with recreational cannabis legal and on the books. Memory of George Floyd, sobriety still would be best. I even remember it was 10 years ago we had a non-white person who dialed in and got up a D. They are not going to legalize cannabis and that's not going to happen. It's only going to be in, at that time, I think it was like four states, Washington State being one. Now it's about half of the United States recreational cannabis including states that have a substantial population of black people like California, New York State Illinois and many others 23 to be Washington D.C. Anywho uh, man I don't even remember if somebody really called me like Gus T I'll give you two million dollars if you can tell me how did you find this book other than generally saying I was at the library and searched like if you specific what was the key word or you know how did you I don't even remember I literally 
sometimes will go to the library and I will find so much information on white supremacy racism I will just take it all because you can't read everything right at that moment and read it later and sometimes I'll get so much data I will forget about books articles that are important this is one for so many reasons one I will never we had Anna Blasso she was a guest on the program last year we were talking about Buffalo she does research on racism in Buffalo she had the gall the audacity to bring up affirmative action relative to Buffalo and the same racist framing black people and I said immediately and I put some bass in my voice like you got to be out of your mind to be talking to me as a white woman about affirmative action unless you're going to say anything other than affirmative action is me I am the poster child not you black man what does this have to do with Peyton Gendron and tops we've had a few of those where white people get here and act like oh I didn't know white women if I had read this book when it was published in 2012 like oh my gosh I would be so saucy talking to a white person I was last year with Anna Blasso I almost played that as a sound clip but man that's one of those I wish I wish that's why we white guests only I wish a white person would come on here and talk about some affirmative action in the Negroes in any aspect even I am I don't really care, but even if a non-white person got around me and talking about some, you know, affirmative action and black, that is white people, white women specifically. But even once you get those LGBTQ and all the rest and the, the religion, even you probably got a lot of white men right there. Not us. Get out of here. And the Miss Andre, I literally just had a cow's listener just contact me and get mannish. Gus T, why when you mention George Floyd, Oscar Grant, why do you pick that moment to say black male privilege? Because I don't know when else I would say it. If you all can point out a time where I can brag about the power of the black male in the system of white supremacy, I'll say it then. To have it in writing affirmative action we have a gripe they didn't say people of color they didn't say black indigenous POCs they didn't even say black people they said black men and it came up over and over Dr. Pierce confirmed yep you read that correctly it is gendered where's the privilege at we're not even sitting around mad. They even said talking to black females who are victims of racism, but it's not. Get out of here. We don't. No, no. It's. Whew, she's intimidating. Wow. She's so smart. Wow. We don't want too many of her. Wow. That is very different from these black males are unqualified. They're rapists, and they're not coming here at all to take my job. That is. And then to frame the whole argument as. Do we want these unqualified Negro males coming in here taking jobs from white men? Black Miss Andrea, I said that before, I grossly underestimated. That is one of the central tenets of how this operates. That's right there in Dr. Welsing's theory. White, what is all this? 
white male anxiety. That's why we got the Peyton Ginger and you're raping our women. Columbine, really. Timothy McVeigh through and through. White male anxiety. What are we going to do these black male? That's what Dr. Welsing said. Really? Mr. Fuller said that as well. Black male privilege. That's why I call that out. How in the world can it be that you have black male privilege? It's not supported by any evidence. What are you talking about? Jobs? Nope. Life expectancy? Nope. Likelihood to be the victim of violence? Nope. Black males, all of these metrics that I think value likelihood of graduating from high school. Black males are at the bottom for all those metrics. What do you mean black male privilege? And then they sit around and this is framed as affirmative action is for lazy, unqualified black males. That's really how this is framed. Wow. And then who's most likely to be unemployed? Black males. Wow, I learned quite a bit from the book. The racism is still there to be expected. But wow, I learned quite a bit and double down, triple down, quadruple down. That is an extraordinary error, omission, act of racism. I knew about Arenthal James, Mark Furman, affirmative action. That should have been front and center in a book that is specifically focused on that time period and does mention the race card. This is how toxic this is not some. Oh, it's a little bit of a problem. Like he was in a group called men against women having kill parties in addition to all the rest of it. Mark Furman with a GED egregious error and that's a part of the same omission say that all the time culturally collectively we white people non-white people do not remember do not talk about that it's just OJ Simpson was guilty and that's that maybe Mark Furman was racist but that didn't mean he didn't kill those black people really excuse me white people really Hmm. Anywho, uh, let's see. Folks who dialed in, did you have commentary before we wrap up? I'm glad she was able to indulge us so that we could cover a lot of material because my brain computer was very stimulated in reading her book for a myriad uh, of reasons. If anything, hopefully we will all be much more informed uh, moving forward about affirmative action. I guess the folks who are with us, if you have any commentary and then I'll ask, uh, did that make sense? Uh, what did you make the analysis of this affirmative action thing is gendered? There is a black misandry component. It is really white people grousing about black males getting employment. That is the main thrust of this, not really talking about anybody else explicitly black males did you all grasp that did you hear that that makes sense and then whatever other comments before we wrap up did folks have any thoughts on that people that have a hand up and listening in hi can you hear me bay area mom yes ma'am 
Yeah. So I was just thinking with that, that's, that's true, right? It, it is about the black male. So um, I think that's true. Um, but they do, you know, we're affected as well, the black women, but I think it's about making sure that black male doesn't come in and take the white man's job because a lot of white men are stragglers. You know, they're very lazy. So they need, they don't, they're not going to all get um, all the uh, corporate jobs. So I think it is true. It's about the male. The women, you know, of course, you have your battles with the white women. So our battle is basically with her. But the man, the white man, his his gripe is you. We we'll make sure you don't. You, you, you. So that's what I, I, I like that because I believe that. Um as well. So that's all. I'll let someone else. And I don't have any more um, stuff. I just said that it's looking in the old years. Uh, okay. Thank you. Much obliged, Bay Area Mom. Any of the other folks uh, with us have commentary they wanted to get in before we wrap up? Yes, sir. Um, I wanted to also talk about uh, she snickered a lot during the interview at certain moments. I think those are when she, I guess, realized, in my opinion, I think she realized she was caught and like, oh, I did leave that out. I also thought it was interesting that you brought up uh, Mark Furman being omitted from her book. And I I was thinking about asking her, could that be an act of racism on her part? Uh, I guess keeping, I guess, the white people from being uh, the point of blame or the point of of ridicule in some type of way. That's what I was thinking in my head. Um, And I also thought it was interesting that she didn't have any numbers on LGBTQ people and when it came to affirmative action. Um, And about your point, about uh, the system of white supremacy being uh, particularly black misandry. Um, I would agree with that point um, for the the fact that once males are, black males are given um, opportunity to advance and excel in any kind of areas, uh, uh, we tend to excel very well. And, uh, yeah, that's what I want to say. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Much obliged, sir. You, was it you who asked the question, uh, was so affirmative action has not kept white people from practicing racism? And she even dumped buckets of words on us. It took her a while before she said affirmative action has not helped people of color. Was that you? Uh, no, sir. That was 297, I believe. Oh, okay. Much obliged. Bad memory on my part. Much obliged. But I thought that was important as well. But for your response there, um, I appreciate the fact that you did process that as her making that omission. She has a Ph.D. white woman. She was she's old enough that she was alive and not like a kindergartner or a middle schooler. When the O.J. Simpson trial took place in the 90s, you could just do uh, one. If you paid attention to all of this, that should be. But minimum, if you are scholarly you can do a keyword search 
at the library and as a PhD scholar you'd be trained to do this you can do a keyword search for affirmative action during that time period if you're thorough man that was an enormous part of the trial I know it I'm an I don't have a PhD I don't get to teach at the University of Minnesota or anywhere else and I know it and there's extensive like I said I had my pick this wasn't something where I had to go and root around and read 50 books very aware of this we talked about it old Jeff Tubin talked about it in detail best-selling book yes that sort of omission that's why I started with it like oh my goodness this is not a minor you didn't even mention OJ Simpson the trial of the century you mentioned race card where did that come from why is that popular and it's in terms of white grievance that the system is rigged for black males for black males or rental james absolutely i appreciate that that yes process and the giggling she did do a lot of snickering during the broadcast apps at point things that were not funny even that about calpurnia that's not funny like i'm sure rosa parks didn't think being raped in a white man's home in alabama she did not think that was funny Two nine seven nine. Sorry for stealing your question. Did you have commentary? Was that it? Everybody good? Uh, yeah, just a, a couple of words. Uh, I do agree with your point about the the system targeting black males. Uh, that's certainly what I, what I've witnessed. Uh, the so uh, oh, my questions were kind of geared towards understanding a bit more about affirmative action. My my care mate and myself have been researching affirmative action. So I've I've had a chance to listen to some of the oral arguments that are going on and watch some other debates about affirmative action. And I I had asked that question about whether or not it had been successful um, in preventing white people from practicing racism, white, white supremacy, uh, mainly because I, I suspect that affirmative action is not intended to benefit non-white people in any way, shape, or form, definitely not meant to produce justice. But yet, what I'm noticing and what I'm seeing, and I'm sure uh, this is uh, the, uh, the white supremacist doing, uh, I'll see non-white people devote loads of time and energy towards uh, holding on to affirmative action, advocating for affirmative action, uh, instead of, you know, advocating for a system of justice or anything like that. Uh, so I kind of wanted, I wanted to understand from her perspective, uh, she's a white person who's well-researched in this area, it, it, whether or not in her view this was something that is working for non-white people um, because I suspect it is not. Uh, yeah, so th- thank you for taking my call. Absolutely not. And I, I think even she gave the data about attorneys, how the number of white women attorneys uh, has exploded from 1970 when it was 3% female attorneys to now is 38% and the overwhelming majority of those are white women. I think it's about 30% of the attorneys in the U.S. are white women. 
30%. She told us 5% of the attorneys in the U.S. are classified as black. So, and that's why I asked her, do, in her research, were non-white people informed about affirmative action? Because I've seen the same thing that you have, where non-white people do expend a lot of time and energy talking about this and we got to have it and oh my goodness they're going to take it away from us and that no count dirty Clarence Thomas he doesn't even support affirmative action as opposed to wait a minute this has mostly benefited white people this has not helped black people get jobs at all and even as we started with most companies they are not required to have any sort of affirmative action program much less an effective program and in fact she even includes in her book the refinement they just switched it to make it about diversity and so to make that so broad and oh I'm missing the word diluted there we go so broad and diluted that it's not about racism white supremacy at all it's about LGBTQ disability ageism religious diversity we got to have the evangelicals and protestants and all this other stuff wait like didn't we start trying to eliminate racism get to that we got discrimination on like she writes about that exactly and how that's used to drive a profit so they can brag we're about diversity see and they can show someone in a wheelchair and lgbtq and elderly person see see and it's like do you have any black people oh yeah in the basement yeah yeah refinement and that that was the one where she switched it she didn't say no affirmative action has not stopped white people from practicing racism she said affirmative action has not helped people of color words are so important and she even points that out in the book that so many of these white attorneys would get vague and be stumbling and stuttering these are white people with tons of education presumably who are paid to be articulate and particularly who are paid to be exceptionally skilled with words who now all of a sudden can't put one sentence together why is that all this stumbling and mealy mouth stuttering why is that because you can't tell racist jokes like that's another one where I point to we do not understand what it means to be white I cannot emphasize enough the first thing that comes out of this white man's mouth is not I don't like having all these women around it's not hey we gotta go through different trainings we gotta have old no count Jane Elliott come in and waste a day of our time on he didn't say that the first thing he said was we can't tell racist jokes and he didn't even say sexist jokes he tried to slip that in obfuscate racist jokes what does it mean why are these jokes so important oh we enjoy practicing white supremacy racism we're not blind to it we're not ignorant about it in fact she even included I think the caller who asked were some of these white people concerned did they think they were going to get in trouble if you are white you cannot be ignorant about racism or you will get in trouble with other white people I'll end with 
that short story at the end where she has all those phallic references again she has where they got to go in detail talking about a rape case and did this guy use a condom and all this other no. uh and then they're talking about having sex with a piano and she's such a ball breaker she's a ball buster oh she's a ball breaker yeah that's a ball breaker yeah. all of this focus on the genital and the bulls like I said Dr. Welser you castrate that bull all of that genital focus and she said that that's you know the way that these guys talk in this environment once again Dr. Francis Cress Welsing why are individuals classified as white why do they practice white supremacy racism even the word prick is in there I forgot about that one the word prick talking about a penis why all this focus on the genitals white genetic annihilation why in particular white male fear what oh no oh no focused on the black males genetic dr welsing talked about that all the time and that's in a fictional story that she makes up that's supposed to be based on truth things that can't be talked about dr welsing oh man she would have hopefully you know do my best as a student of Dr. Welsing. Anyway, we'll be here tomorrow. Man, she said she was a native of Colorado. I submit all this directly connects to Columbine. I said that when she was here, that right there, failure of white masculinity is right there. Dylan Klebold, Eric Harris, that right there. Great equalizer. Threat of white genetic annihilation. What I'm going to do? get me a gun mm. Columbine 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific tomorrow context of white supremacy listener supported counter racist radio hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com listener supported counter racist radio you'll see the PayPal button links for PayPal, Cash App, and Venmo. Enormous gratitude to all the generous investors who kept us broadcasting for 14 years. Hopefully, we have been worthy of your time and energy. Researching, man. Reading, writing, more important than watching television. There is an extensive film, uh, film list in the back of this book that even includes the Halle Berry classic BAPS sobriety would be best shout to Minnesota George Floyd uh, man we did overtime we'll wrap up quickly uh, no name calling no gossiping oh she talked about the gossiping in the workplace no gossiping no throwaway offspring cows signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim no brother problem. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.